Welcome to Plastic Model Mojo, a podcast dedicated to scale modeling, as well as the news and events around the hobby, where we hope to be informative and entertaining and help you keep your modeling mojo alive. Dave, I'm back, rested and recuperated from vacation, and we are ready for episode 61 of Plastic Model Mojo. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing good. Are you tanned, rested, and ready? Uh, I got a start on my tan, but I didn't. I didn't go the whole, the whole nine yards on the tan. Best not get sunburned on your first outing into the Florida sunshine. Yeah, well, and and not only that, but I'm sure you spent a fair amount of time inside in all the Disney attractions. I sure did, but we were outside probably more, all the walking around. We sure logged a lot of steps. Yeah. But that's not modeling, Dave. (laughs) Well, Dave, to get back to modeling or modeling adjacent, other than 10 hours of yard work and no OTB to carry you through, what's up in your model sphere uh, this, this couple of weeks? I am glad you mentioned that because my model sphere took a hit because, again, we're having our first true week of weekend of decent warm weather in spring, and I have to get the yard and the pool area ready. So I had tons of yard work to do, and I was all ready Saturday morning to jump out there, get it done, listening to OTB, and there was no OTB. Well, I talked to Mr. Goldfinch, and uh, they've got more rains and floods, and he's been deployed this week or so. So, I was going to say that I suspected the reason was that because uh, I saw on his personal Facebook page that he had been deployed to the uh, New South Wales portion of the country to do flood work. So uh, I suspected that had something to do with it. But, you know. The least he could have done was still got me an OTB, but and we'll forget. We'll forgive him at least until Omaha. Then we'll then I'll give him all kinds of crap. Well, anything else going on? Well, uh, my eldest daughter just turned eighteen, so that was uh, that took up some some what of what otherwise would have been modeling time with all the celebrations. But even with all of that, I'm making steady progress. I I see. Another completion, maybe two in the next six weeks. Write it down, people. Yeah, that's right. If I get three under my belt by end of May, I'm gonna I'm gonna consider this a, a good year. So yeah, my model sphere pretty pretty darn good. So how about yours? Oh, it's been uh, forward planning. I had a lot of button seat time getting to Orlando. So uh, during my flights, uh, I worked out a little forward planning. You know, we kind of keep it fast and loose, flying by the seat of our pants to do this show. And uh, we've done okay so far, but I've been a little delinquent trying to schedule a couple of future guests. I've been trying to trying to rectify that because one in particular has been asking about it. And uh, I don't blame him because we've been talking to him for quite a while, but uh, we got him on the calendar now. Almost. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm sizing up this new platform we're going to move to. I've been poking around with that. We still need to do a, the free hour recording session and see what we think. But uh, I think uh, it's going to offer some new features and better post-production. I think that's going to yeah. be a good move for us. I've been kind of fleshing that out, asking asking their support community a bunch of questions so we don't switch and regret it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then uh, we're finally on Instagram, Dave. 
I was going to mention that you you finally finally bit the bullet and pulled the trigger, and we now have an Instagram feed, and it's connected to our Facebook feed. So yes, I'm going to call that a success for a Thursday (laughs) afternoon. Mike, uh, I assume that you have a modeling fluid. I do, I do, Dave. I've got a modeling fluid, of course. What is your modeling fluid, sir? Uh, Bank Street, Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. Bank Street. Who's the distiller? Uh, it is unknown. Really? Yes. This is an 80 proof exclusive offered in its entirety through the total wine franchise. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's bottled up in New Jersey, but a lot of stuff gets bottled out of state. Um, 80 proof, like I said, so only a handful of our listeners will be able to find it. You gotta be in the kind of the total wine kind of umbrella. And there's not that many stores really. Yep. There's one just up the street from me. Well, so you're covered. Yeah, but at yep. the end, maybe maybe they will not uh, be so desired. I don't know. We'll give the verdict to the end, so stay tuned till the end. Well, good. What about, what about you? Well, um, after the disaster of the peanut butter whiskey last time, I decided to go back to beer, and I decided to continue on with the uh, foreign beers. And so at Total Wine, I picked up, a bottle of Lucky Buddha Sure Hit Enlightened Beer from, let's see, Zhejiang Province, China. 4.8% alcohol by volume. Uh, looks to be lager style. You know what it tastes like? It tastes like a Heineken that's gone skunky. <laughs> Man, you're over two. <laughs> it's not awful, but it exactly, t- I've had. I've had a Heineken that's gone skunky. This is exactly what it tastes like. Well, you enjoy that, Dave. You know, I, I, had, a, I had a funky Buddha down in uh, Florida. Well, that's, uh, to be honest with you, that's what caused me to get lucky Buddha. It's the fact that you had funky Buddha. And so I thought, well, you know, that'll that'll tie in well. And where is this from? It's from Zhejiang Province in China. Uh, with all my travel partners back in my uh, former job, uh, we called China the land of not exactly. Yeah, that's, that is exactly right. This, uh, uh, you remember the famous beer from Vietnam uh, during the Vietnam War, uh, South Vietnamese beer? Uh, I forget what it was called. So you don't remember either. Oh, uh, shit. <laughs> uh, but it, it had a little bit of formaldehyde in it. Oh God! And this this reminds you of that. Well, I've this never had either, and I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> this reminds you of that. Well, yeah, we'll 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 see. Wait, wait till the end. This this might might have some sort of great finish. So I'm not I'm not guaranteeing it, but I'm pretty sure that unlike the peanut butter whiskey, I am not going to tap out on this. I hope your great finish doesn't involve four rolls of toilet paper. Yeah, <laughs> you and me both, buddy. <laughs> Well, Dave, I love the mailbag, and uh, I think it's my favorite segment. And once again, we got a nice stack of emails, so let's get right into that and get rolling, man. You got it. Up first, our good buddy Christopher Church from Springdale, Arkansas. Now, this is uh, all centered around our episode on, we kind of touched on 3D printing a little bit in our special segment last time. Well, It was our special segment, so it should have been a lot, but I don't know how much we really rocked the boat on that. Probably not much. It it, it was my experiences, yes. Right. We touched the basics. 
Uh, in your discussion of 3D printing, you mentioned future impacts the technology may have on IPMS contests, judging criteria, etc. Curious if you have any insight into how changes like this are discussed within the IPMS. Is it customary for IPMS to solicit public comment? I have no idea, Dave. What about you? Well, let, let me tell you. Uh, the rules for the national contest are formulated by something called the NCC, the National Contest Committee. Uh, the National Contest Committee is separate from the IPMS officership. The National Contest Committee is made up of IPMS head judges, national head judges, some former IPMS officers like former presidents are in there. They formulate the rules changes to each year's contest. And some years there are no changes Sometimes there are changes that have been evolving over a number of years, kind of like the Catholic Church. <laughs> the National Contest Committee moves slowly. It it doesn't do radical changes overnight. And we're in the era of overnight radical change, Dave. Yes, I know. Uh, right, which which, which is problematic. <laughs> it, it may may be problematic for the NCC, but they will address it i have no doubt that there will be the the idea of 3d printing and 3d printed kits and commercial 3d printed kits and self-designed 3d printed kits all of that is eventually going to come into the rules or affect the rules in one way or another what that effect will be i don't know the NCC generally doesn't solicit public input directly. Normally, they do it more indirectly by communications with the membership at the national convention, judges, head judges talking to participants and stuff like that. And then those head judges bring the what they've gleaned from their man-on-the-street interactions back to the NCC to formulate changes. So I, I doubt there will be any sort of public solicitation of comments, but I could be wrong. Again, times are changing, and the NCC may be more open to that eventually. But I do know for sure that there will be rules changes down the road based on 3D printing, 3D printed kits, et cetera. What those will be, I have no clue. Well, and it also goes on from a 3D print detail perspective. Do you see parallels between 3D printing phenomenon and past major evolutions in the hobby? For example, the proliferation of photo etched detail parts, including pre-painted photo etched cockpit details, et cetera. Uh, I would say yes, I do see some parallels and you probably do too, Dave. Oh, absolutely. Um, but I'm going to defer this a little bit. You're going to get a little touch on this uh, in our faves and yawns segment in factual reality or in hyperbola. <laughs> <laughs> but we'll get there eventually. Uh, well, I will, I will say that I do think that the 3D printing revolution, close as, as far as I can equate it, to me, the closest equivalent is the resin revolution from 25, 30 years ago with all the resin detail parts and all. And yeah. 
right now, I think that's the closest analog. And finally, I'm getting a lot out of this one, man. Thanks, Christopher. It's a good email. Uh, from the pr- perspective in, of entirely 3D printed kits, curious of your views on, on, on this becoming its own contest subcategory with more emphasis on painting and finishing and less on construction. Uh, I'm going to say yes to part the first part of this as it possibly becoming its own contest subcategory. Possibly. Uh, I'm going to say you're making an assumption with the emphasis on painting and finishing and less on construction. You're, you're, you're assuming that these are, are less construction uh, intensive and that may that's not necessarily true. And let me, let me talk about that a little bit. It's not necessarily less of a kit. There are two schools of thought. Well, that might be an oversimplification. At least two schools. Well, no, there's more of a spectrum of, of, of uh, philosophy about 3D printing and, and model design in, in, a, in a 3D print uh, realm. Basically, it's fewer parts versus more parts. Mm-hmm. And on, on one extreme, one bookend, you have kit designers or model designers in the 3d print realm trying to design this thing as few parts as possible if not print the whole thing in one shot right right on the other end of the spectrum you have the more detail oriented i would say engineer type folks who are understanding that this particular assembly the details in this direction are better rendered if it's printed in this orientation but the details on this side are better rendered if printed in this other orientation so those folks are either willing to accept the compromise of uh, uh, someplace in the middle or they're going to break it into two or three parts and print them with the best detail fidelity they can get out of the machine they're printing on in that particular situation. So in that situation, they're going to end up with a lot more parts. Well, just uh, ju- just as an example uh- – uh, it seems like we reference him all the time, but uh, on Night Shift, Martin Kovac built a 3D printed tank for one of his video series. And that was a kit, just as if it had been an injection molded plastic kit. It had, you know, it may have, may have had less parts than if it had been done in injection plastic, but I'm not even sure that's true. But it was a kit. It wasn't something that he pulled out of the box, trimmed away the the uh, support structure, and then just painted, and it was done. I do think that a lot of people assume that a 3D printed kit is just one whole thing that requires no assembly, and that is just not the case. And like I say, there's a spectrum of, of philosophy between those two extremes, right? Yeah. And you could print it out as you could print out a 200 part kit if you wanted to. Yeah. You may not have to, but you could, but that's, that's kind of where it goes. So this is kind of a complicated topic, I think for, for contest judging, maybe, maybe I'm overthinking it. I don't know, but, uh, um, I, I, I think you got to, you got to get away from that assumption that it's, it's fundamentally less parts because it's, that's that's not exactly true. Again, I analogizing back to the resin revolution of 25 30 years ago. There there were whole resin kits. Okay? And those resin kits were multiple parts. Uh, you know, now maybe some of them had fewer parts, but even that's not the case. Go take a look at an SBS resin kit. 
that is as close to an injection molded kit as you'll ever find. I think that a lot of what we're going to see in 3D printing is, in essence, 3D printed kits that will take no less skill from a modeler in both construction and painting and weathering. And therefore, I'm not sure we may be building this up a little too much. It may turn out to have no more effect than resin kits or vacuform kits or 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 metal kits in in the figure realm. And that may be true, but you know the whole scratch print design and print that's a whole that's a whole different ball of wax there. That is going to raise some interesting issues. I agree with you. All right. Well, let's move on. Thanks, Chris. That was that was good. We mined that one. That was a that was definitely good. Andrew Armstrong from Centerpoint, New York. I really enjoyed the last episode. As someone who has tried the same peanut butter whiskey mistake as Dave, I feel his pain. <laughs> oh man. <laughs> oh, we're just getting started, dude. Oh, this is dude. this is the bad drink choice by Dave listener mail episode. Oh great. <laughs> But all is not lost. After I purchased and tried Screwball Peanut Butter Whiskey on a whim, I thought it had no redeeming qualities either. One day, inspiration struck, and I put it in hot chocolate. It was surprisingly good. I could see that. There you I, go, Dave. It's like the Reese's could, Cup hot chocolate. It's exactly a, a, an Irish whiskey Reese's Cup hot chocolate. That, I, I could see that. Well, and then on our topic of shows and contests... Uh, he's going to his first show. Well, he's already been at this point because he was going on uh, Saturday, March 26th. I hope he had a great time. Andrew, please let us know if you did. Yes. And, and some yes. high points of that show. It was the Replicon show in Freeport, New York. Yes, definitely. Give us a show report. Email back in. And I love getting impressions of shows from folks who've gone to their first show because it kind of lets you see it with fresh eyes. You know, we've been to so many shows that that stuff doesn't doesn't strike us the same way. So, yeah, email in and let us know what your experience was. Well, Dave, Richard Forzon comes back from uh, El Paso, Texas, and uh, Jim Bates mentioned a hobby shop down. Uh, I can't remember if it's the yeah, it was in El Paso. Was it in El Paso? Yeah, Richard says that that is uh, Hal's Hobby Warehouse. Yep, and it's still there. Oh, Jim will be thrilled to hear that. I'm sure Hal's thrilled too. Yeah, probably. Ah, Brandon Walters, Guelph, Guelph, Canada. Guelph? I think it's Guelph. Is it Guelph or Guelph? I think it's Guelph, but no, uh, our Canadian listeners will, will let us know for sure. Dave, I have to say that peanut butter bourbon sounds pretty horrible. <laughs> I am never going to live this down. Back in December, I had a peanut butter and raspberry stout that was just awful. No help that it came down with a noro infection at the same time, and the association is far too strong. Oh, man. I'll bet. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I flavored stouts, coffee stouts, peanut butter stouts, they're, they're, they put, they're, there's some brewer somewhere trying everything into a stout. Generally, I don't particularly like any of them. The only good peanut butter alcohol I've ever heard of is a porter called Duclaw, called Sweet Baby Jesus. Oh, oh yeah, Sweet Baby Jesus is actually good. You know where that—that's out of Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, is it? 
Yeah, do call because, uh, as a matter of fact, you can get it up in the in BWI uh, at the at several restaurants up there. Well, anyway, you want to thank us for the highlight or for highlighting the Vertigo modeling jigs. Yes, uh, he's been using a very basic three D printed stand, but this Vertigo looks a lot better, and he's christening it with his uh, forty eight scale Tamiya P fifty one. Well, that that's hey, listen. If you're going to christen it, that's the that's one of the kits to to christen it with. You're not going to have uh, any problems with that. And yes, I swear by the Vertigo stands. I really, really like them. Mike Stucker, Sugarland, Texas. He's got a several things to say. And uh, first, the peanut butter whiskey sounded <laughs> awful even before Dave tasted it. <laughs> I am never going to hear the end of this. <laughs> However, if you do like peanut butter, there's a peanut butter flavored vodka out of Temperance, Michigan called Nut Liquor, which he he recommends. Hmm. Okay. You know what? I know. Is is, is that a metaphor for for folks who drink flavored vodka? (laughs) Yeah. I I don't know. But uh, uh, that's, you you know, even though I was burned with the peanut butter whiskey, I'm still intrigued i may i may look for that we'll see well you're a glutton for punishment that's true he says on this discussion of stress and model building uh, he's with jim bates and that uh he didn't like to model if he's stressed out yep brings stress to the modeling and things just don't grow right completely agree it's not supposed to be stressful but he says he's retired now so stress isn't much (laughs) of an issue god bless Uh. you mike Yes. Congratulations. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, on model or a museum model displays and contests. Uh, he says that they did that in the Houston area for a couple of years before COVID. And uh, they did that at the Lone Star Flight Museum. Mm-hmm. He said it seemed like a great success and hope the museum will ask us back again now that things have chilled out a little bit. And gosh, he's got a lot. Entering contests, even if you don't think you can win, do it. Oh, yes, absolutely. The last thing entering a contest is really about is about winning. Uh, I mean, it's nice. It's a good affirmation uh, if you do happen to win an award, but that's that's not what it's about. The main thing that it's about is other people went out of the way to bring stuff that they built so you can see it and you get enjoyment from seeing it. I always kind of view it as the the what you owe them for what they did for you by bringing their model. Well, he offers a nugget that you might not think about, but it kind of happens every now and then. He entered a South African Rhino self-propelled artillery piece yep. in the show. He didn't win anything, but there just so happened to be a former South African there who served in the South African military as a crew member of one of these vehicles. <laughs> yep. And I uh, really appreciate the model. Well, that, uh, yes, that, that does happen from time to time. I remember our Uber ride back to the hotel oh, yeah. in Vegas. The, the, the Uber driver happened to have been uh, a former Merkava tank crewman, wasn't he? Yes. Yes, he was. <laughs> you never know. Listen, uh, modeling opens up all sorts of doors and you never know who you'll encounter that you'll, you'll get a new connection and a new experience from. And in shout outs last episode, Dave, you mentioned upscale hobbies in Indiana. Yeah. 
And uh, Mike Stucker says that uh, he wholeheartedly recommends them. He's been dealing online with them for the last few years, and they provide great service. Good. That's fantastic. So you don't have to drive over there anymore. Well, I don't. It's not far. And I like going to a hobby shop. Even if I'm going to get a particular thing, I just want to look around. You never know what what you're gonna what you're gonna encounter. Up next is J.W. Keenum from uh, currently, well, at the time of this email, Chattanooga, Tennessee, and they are moving to Elizabethtown, Kentucky by the end of All the right. year. All right, and he's looking for a model club in the area, and. Well, uh, I would, can, say, we, I, I would say I would say E Town is a mere forty five minutes to Brian's shop because I got on MapQuest and looked. It, and, it's uh, actually less than that, but pro- uh, probably is on a good day. On a good day, so you welcome welcome to the Military Modelers Club of Louisville. We have a number of members who who live in the E Town Fort Knox Radcliffe area, and uh, we will we will be happy to have you uh, at. At my home chapter. Well, he's coming back after a 30-year absence, so got a lot to learn, and he can do it in the Military Modelers Club of Louisville. Yep, yep, absolutely. Then there are guys there willing to help. Annie Leffler from uh, the Roscoe Turner chapter reminds us once again that Saturday, April 16th, is their invitational contest and swap meet. And we are well aware of that because we got a table. We do. See you there, folks. Absolutely. <laughs> Jacob Isley. First of all, that peanut butter crap is a drain pour. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I would love to disagree with him. I I can't. Uh, other than the fact is that it might eat your pipes if you pour it down the drain. But yeah. The only flavor whiskey I like is knuckle nog and salted caramel. It's a great dessert whiskey, but must be taken in moderation. That sounds good. And he likes the cherry bourbon unique to Michigan. Low proof, but another great sipper. He sent us a link to that, but I'm going to pass. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a purist. I know. I know. Ah, uh, you know, Jim Jim struck a chord with him, too, about the uh, wanting to make ki- old kits good. Yeah. Old monogram kit, old airfix kit. You know, they want the cert- satisfaction of making a bad kit good, but he says don't kill your mojo over it. Yeah. And... He's talking about ghost seams a little bit. Okay. Uh, he brush paints Steinle Res over these seams and uh, sands them back with 600,000 grit sandpaper and kills it dead, Dave. Yep. No, I agree. That's uh, that, that, I think, is a good solution to that type of problem. All right. Well, Jake, thanks for the email. Man, we got a lot. I know. Ken Beckler from Peoria, Illinois, the Jack Wiselick. Polish Coast Watchers Club. Hadn't heard from them in a few episodes, but here they are again. We have so many emails from that club. One of these days, we are going to have to make a pilgrimage. That's not a bad idea. It's not that far. We could, I mean, we could do Peoria in a decent amount of time. Probably right. He's got an idea of what he likes to do when he's in a funk. Uh, he finds an old kid he did as, did as a kid and rehabs it to a better standard. You get a chance to right or wrong or develop new skills such as deconstruction, scratch building, refinishing techniques. You know, he's going to see us in uh, Roscoe Turner as well, but I don't have any kits I built as a kid. I, 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 from He says deconstruction, so I think he means actual physical right. models he's had since then. Uh, now, I'm, I'm all for the nostalgia of building one you built as a kid. Yeah. 
I I have very few that I built when I was when I was a teenager when I first got into modeling. I do have a few of them there in in boxes over at my parents' house uh, in their basement. But uh, yeah, I I have very few uh, models from that. I I mean I've got a bunch that I've built since I got back into modeling in the early 1980s but very little from from my teenage years in the 70s. Oh, and Bob Bear from Charlotte, North Carolina again. Seems he's had the same uh, GI issue I had a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry for that, man. Yeah. Uh, that's not the only hell he's endured. I guess he's in the Plastic Posse podcast M3, M4 build and building a, a Sexton 2 from Dragon, which would be Ooh. like a, a British Commonwealth version of the priest with a with a, yeah a British artillery piece in it instead of a, an American one. Yeah. 25 pounder. I think that's right. So he's lost a part and the kit is unobtainium now. Cause it's oh, all the old dragon stuff's getting kind of hard to get. Mm-hmm. It uh, is. Part B 45. If anybody out there in Mojovia has this kit or part of this kit and has part B 45, drop us a note so we can help Bob finish his uh, group build. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you know, the way that uh, um, Dragon cross-kitted stuff, I don't know what part he's missing, and I don't know if it's one that's unique to the Sexton or if it's a part that might be in another kit, but that's always a thought. It is. I don't know what part B25, B45 is. Yeah, neither do I. Warren Dickinson, Elkton, Kentucky. Did he ever come up to the club sh- club meetings? No, he has not. Now it's that's a fair distance. Oh no, it wasn't that. He's going to come up to Brian's shop. He's going to come to Brian's shop, and I'm one. I've been trying to get him to come to our show. Okay, David, are you high? Did you lose a bet? <laughs> what on God's green earth possessed you to try whiskey flavored with peanut butter? <laughs> Did you honestly think this would turn out positive? Well, okay. Call me a a cockeyed optimist. I thought there was a small possibility that this thing was going to have just a hint of a peanut butter flavor and was going to be a very nice drinkable whiskey. I was wrong. I was very wrong. But, you know, it's one of those things, if you don't try, you never know. So... Even though it was a complete epic fail, I learned something from it. And just like in modeling, sometimes you try things, they don't work out, but at least you can take the the, the knowledge that, okay, that didn't work. This is interesting, this next point. Honestly, the only thing I can think of worse than <laughs> the Christmas a few years ago when my nephew asked me to get, a, get him some sweet baby Jesus peanut butter and chocolate favorite beer. Of course, I was dumb enough to take a sip. I can't have, I can't imagine how horrible the whiskey was. So we got two listeners writing in about Sweet Baby Jesus, and one of them loves it, and one of them hates it. And I've had Sweet Baby Jesus, and while it isn't something that I would drink regularly, it is nowhere near in the category of that peanut butter whiskey. Stephen Lee, everybody at Sprue Pie with Frets, he wants us to give folks a heads up based on our episode fifty nine on three D printing. The title of his post, and it may be out now. I've not read it yet because this was, he sent this on the second. So that was yesterday. 
Uh, title of the post is 3D printing haters are missing out. And uh, he's just uh, writing a blog post on how embracing a new technology is good for the hobby. I agree. Curious I about agree. our take on it, and we'll offer our take on it as soon as it's posted and we actually read it. Yep. All right. Finally, from the email side, Michael Karnalka from uh, New York City again. He's, he keeps putting these great little questions out for us. <laughs> what kit in your stash prompts you to ask, why the heck did I buy that? Every time you look at it and pass it by. <laughs> oh, I've got a few of those. Well, pick a top one, a top contender. You know how the Japanese kid a lot of stuff that we don't see over here? Yes. Okay. Do you know what Goiza are? I should. I think I Japanese do. Japanese dumplings. Oh yeah, yeah. The, okay. the the Japanese they're they're kind of semi-translucent white dumplings, usually filled with pork and dipped into a dipping sauce. When I was in Orlando in 2012 at the National Hobby Link Japan was there, and they brought a lot of kits, and they brought some unusual stuff that you only see in Japan. One of the things they brought was a one-to-one scale kit of these Japanese dumplings. (laughs) And I bought one of those kits. And I mean, the, 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 the box art, it is amazing how the modeler made it look like real goiza, real Japanese dumplings. Um, Maybe that's what caused me to buy it, but I have it. I see it all the time. And I'm like, why did you think that was a good idea? And I don't, the answer to that question is I have no clue. I've got one too. Okay. Mine is an ancient Bandai 130th scale Panzer IV Heuschrecker. You know what that is? Heuschrecker, no. Grasshopper. It's that Panzer IV that, that Panzer IV derivative with the 10.5 centimeter gun that had the gantry you could lift it off and set it on a ground mount. Oh, yes. Yeah. One thirty, the old one thirtieth scale Bandai line. I mean, this kit's probably from early seventies, late sixties, probably. It's old. And 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 why? Well, that's the whole crux of his question, right? I don't, yes. I don't know. I probably had delusions of grandeur about marrying this with a monogram thirty second scale Panzer IV and turn it into something cool. <laughs> but it's it's just too bad. Yeah. Even but, even even by my bad kit standards, this one crosses the line. But yet you still have it. You haven't turned I, you, you haven't binned it. You haven't put it on eBay. You 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 still have it in the stash. I do. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> well, that is it from the email side, Dave. What went down on Facebook and elsewhere in recent day? Well, uh recently I posted uh you know, I'm building that 144 scale uh, B-52 kit, and thanks to your recommendation, I got some Citadel Null Oil. The outriggers on the B-52 wings, uh, the landing gear outriggers, I decided to utilize that Null Oil to weather it, and etc., uh, shade it, shadow it. And I tried it for the first time because, again, I'm all about 
trying new things. You know, what's your plan for getting better? One of the big things is try new stuff. So on your recommendation, I tried it and it turned out really well. I really like it. Uh, I can't wait to play with it some more that uh, null oil. It's interesting um, stuff. It really is. It really is. It's not um, like, I, you know, I've got some like the Vallejo acrylic washes. Right. Yeah. Those, those, those need to be in the bin with the Hoistreka kit. Yes, they do. But the null oil, it, it's, it's, it's not. I wonder if it's like the, the, the future or the, uh, the other acrylic clear coat magic washes, right? Yeah. I wonder if it's more like that. It has some interesting qualities that really make it work well in the shading, weathering, uh, you know, popping out detail. And so I'm going to play with it a lot more. I like your recommendation. I think it's, I can see how this is going to be useful. But so I, I posted photographs of, of what I had done on those outriggers and said, you know, hey, tried this for the first time. I like the way it looks. I like the way it's working out. And Albert Moore uh, uh, commenting on the on the post is actually on my personal Facebook page, not the not the Plastic Model Mojo page. But Albert Moore recommended another one of the uh, Citadel shades. There's one called Agrax Earthshade. A G R A X Earthshade. And he uses it has a dirty, grimy look suitable for toning down metallics such as transmissions and exhaust pipes. And then there's an a gloss version of it, just like there's a non oil gloss. And he says the gloss version of that is really good for simulating fresh oil stains and fresh oil streaking. So I'm going to definitely pick up Citadel's Agrax Earthshade and and give it a try. All right. Well, that's a lot, man. We got a lot of mail this time. I know. This is the point in the episode where I ask you, if you would, uh, when you're done listening, if you'd please go to your podcast app of choice and rate our podcast. We'd appreciate it if you'd give it five stars. It helps drive the visibility of the podcast up. Uh, which helps us get new listeners. We continue to, against all odds, bring in new listeners even now, and we appreciate it. Also, if you have a modeling friend who's not listening to our podcast, we'd appreciate it if you give them a recommendation and help them find the podcast and start listening. The best way for us to get new listeners is to have a current listener recommend us. So we'd appreciate it if you'd do that for us. And a good place they can do that, Dave, is over at modelpodcast.com, the consortium website we've set up to link all the podcasts or provide a single repository for all the podcasts where you can go find links to each of them without having to search all over the internet. So modelpodcast.com. In addition to that, we've got a lot of blog and YouTube friends out there. We've already mentioned him once. Mr. Stephen Lee wrote in for Listener Mail. Sprue Pie with Frets. He's got a great blog, and apparently he's going to have a, a blog post real soon. By the time this drops, it'll probably be out there on uh, missing out on the 3D print revolution. So check that out. Chris Wallace, model airplane maker. He's got a great blog and a YouTube channel. Great modeler. His YouTube videos are good. I'm, I'm learning from him. I'm sure everybody else can, too, if I can. 
Jeff Groves, the the inch high guy, all things 72nd scale blog. Uh, I'm sure we'll see Jeff at Roscoe Turner. I hope we We will. And finally, Jim Bates, the scale Canadian TV. And I sure had fun hanging with Jim for episode 60. And uh, a lot of folks liked what he had to say. So I guess we'll have him back again. Definitely. Definitely. (laughs) And finally, this is the point at which I ask People listening, if you're not a member of IPMS USA, IPMS Canada, or your national IPMS national organization, please consider joining. IPMS is the worldwide organization that promotes uh, plastic modeling, not only through connections with industry and stuff like that. They also connect with modelers in the different countries to facilitate exchanges of information. They're great. They're a great organization. They also help form local chapters. And if you're not a member of a local chapter, if, if it's physically possible, become a member of the local chapter. It adds so much to your modeling. The interaction that you can get with other modelers face-to-face. I mean, we all can watch YouTube videos and stuff like that, but there is nothing better than going to a monthly chapter meeting of your local IPMS chapter and getting to see a hands-on demonstration on uh, soldering or on how to use LED lights to light a science fiction kit, whatever. That is one of the benefits. And while you're there, you're hanging around with a bunch of guys and gals who are interested in what you're interested in. So you're already naturally primed to be friends and you will find people there that you have so much in common with. It's definitely worth doing. Find your local chapter. If you've got one, join and join the IPMS national organization that helps support the existence of those chapters. All right. Dave, let's have a word from our sponsor. Plastic Model Mojo is now brought to you by Model Paint Solutions, your source for harder Steenbeck airbrushes, David Union power tools, and laboratory-grade mixing, measuring, and storage tools for use with all your model paints, be they acrylic, enamels, or lacquers. Check them out at www.modelpaintsolutions.com. We're back again, Dave, and it is Wagon's Hoe for Omaha. Got to be below 120. We are below 120, Dave. At the time of this recording, we're 107 days away from the 2022 IPMS National Convention in Omaha, Nebraska. It's going to be on us like nothing. That's right. Three and uh, a half months is a blink of an eye. I've been busy confirming our table and looking at some various other reservation alternatives like a rental car. And I think I got us covered pretty good on that. You think you got something big enough to haul all the beer that we've got to we got to take with B- us? Big and cheap. It's like I like my women. God. <laughs> <laughs> the big thing going on still right now is trophy sponsorships. Keep them coming in. Keep them. Get on. Get on the the national site and look into trophy sponsorships. And again, if you got a business, a club, or some extra money, it's a good way to get your name out there and uh, to help this show forward. They, they'd really like your help sponsoring trophy packages. Ah, Dave, I'm looking forward to meeting up with all our friends, uh, new and old, man. After Las Vegas, I am so looking forward to Omaha and meeting up with everybody. As, as you know, I already called the Nationals the four best days of my year every year. 
And that's absolutely true. But now having this this community, uh, all the po- other podcasters, all the listeners, it really took it to the next level. And the experience of a national just became that much better because, among other things, I ended up talking with even more people. And again, they're modelers. You already have stuff in common with them. And and the interactions are just fantastic. So I'll be I'll be honest with you. I am so looking forward to Omaha. It's not funny. Well, I've been chatting with Scott Hackney over email and I did a little vacation diversion, but uh, we're going to get him on real soon. I need to get him scheduled to, to hear about the show from the horse's mouth. So look forward to that in the next episode or two. Well, Dave, it's time for the Benchtop Halftime Report, sponsored by Tackett Z. Tackett Z, the must-have tools for the model maker. You can check out all Tackett Z's offerings at www.tackettz.com. Dave, what's your Benchtop look like? My bench top looks good. My bench top looks like progress is being made. The Minicraft B-52 is moving along at an extremely rapid pace. This kit, I've, it's first 144 scale kit I, I think I've ever built. It's moving along beautifully. Again, this, this kit emphasizes uh, my personal model motto, which is life's too short to build old kits. This is a brand new kit. It's engineered beautifully. It fits together really, really well. I did find one error in the instruction that I'll post on our uh, Facebook page. It's a, a, a very minor one, but it is something in the instructions that causes you a few minutes of confusion. But other than that one typo in the instructions, uh, this this kit has been fantastic from beginning to end. And, you know, we talk about enjoying modeling. I've got to say I am enjoying the build of this kit as much as, I think as much as any since I built the Tamiya Zero. It's, it's that enjoyable a model. In addition, the M30 is moving forward slowly, but it is moving forward. I have chipped the wheels, the wheel hubs on the M30. I've got to say, I like the way that it's come out, especially, again, this is the first time I've, other than the paint mule, this is the first time I've chipped an actual model. I was really hesitant because I like the way the M30 is coming. So having chipped the wheels and having liked the way they come, they came out, it's given me enough confidence that I should be chipping the gun sometime in the sh- very near future. And then once that's done, it's m- dust and mud and done. And this thing's about to come up on a two-year birthday, and I'm not going to let a two-year birthday happen with this kit. <laughs> so it it is going to be done. I don't know if it'll be done in time for Indy, but it is going to be done soon. I guarantee you I will be taking that kit to Omaha. All right. That's good news. Yep. How about you? Well, Dave, the Mooseroo Cup 3 is in the books. Yes, it is. Did you hear we won? I heard you won. Uh, I, 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 lo- I like to say we won just because... 
uh, it, it you know it makes it sound like I had some sort of participation in this, other than going, "Hey, that looks great, Mike. Hey, how's that Musaru coming, Mike? That was the extent of my participation. Congratulations, well deserved." Well, I, I said I was going to dish on this after after they announced whether I won or somebody else won, and I'm surprised somebody else didn't win. The, all the entries were were really good. Yes, the quality was amazing. I mean, people didn't sl- slap it together. Well, to break this down, we kind of have the build part and the contest part. So that's kind of the way I'm going to kind of dish on it here. So for the build, uh, top to bottom, a very positive experience, which kind of surprised me. I kind of kind of grew on me, right? Right. You never uh, built a Gundam before. No, right? and you know maybe this group build thing has redemption on the horizon. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and as I mentioned in a in a prior show or episode, you know, Gundam, not my jam at all. I cannot be clearer about that. Modeling without the historical tie-in is not interesting for me. No degree of sublime kit engineering is going to make me fawn over a subject that I have no interest in. Gotcha. Uh, so it wasn't looking good at the front end, you know, too many problems. So why am I here? But I fell back on a mantra we've got, and I took this as an opportunity to explore uh, some new stuff and learn some new things. You know, a plan for getting better, if you will, like you said just a minute ago. So, you know, there's a short list. I, I mentioned them in the last episode, I think, but I'll, I'll, I'll go through them here quickly. You know, there, there were several things that I did different on this that I hadn't done on prior builds, right? Yeah. Uh, either a technique or a product, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, priming in black was something I'd, I'd never done before because I, I personally feel that the light gray primers show errors better than black primer does. And that might that might be subject dependent. I don't know. Possibly, black might be better on a like a streamlined airframe than a tank, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other the other thing I tried once it was primed in black was kind of pre shading through through directional spraying. Now I didn't go the full on zenithal lighting thing because I don't I don't think that works if you shift the viewing angle you're looking at the model from. Right. I think if the zenithal lighting lines up with the ambient lighting in the room. It works great. You rotate the model 180 degrees and it doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah. My personal opinion and taste, I guess. Uh, So I kind of did the whole all around spraying down from a high angle from the top with a, with a, what I use, I used a, to me, a yellow green over the black to get, to get a very high contrast between the shadow and the highlight. Cause I was going with a kind of an OD olive green kind of, overall scheme right right uh that worked out pretty well I, I can see me doing that again on something in the future i don't know if i'd do it on a, a a tank i might i don't know but i'd never done it before and i wanted to try it so i did and i think it was uh, a moderate success i'd never used to me a clears before either use them outright or to shift colors so i used to me a clears to shift the black or the yellow to green and the greens to other greens. So I kind of got, I got my wet, my whistle on to me, a clear, clear colors. Mm-hmm. That was interesting. Uh, and it kind of on, on that same theme, I use clears over metallics to, to try to generate these exhaust heat effects. 
you know, metal yeah. discolorations. Yeah. Particularly uh, the blue. Yeah. The blues. I, I, there's actually, if you really look hard, I don't know if you can see in the photographs or not, but there, there was a blue and then there was a red over that to get a purple. Right. But the, those nozzles were really small and it, what I learned I can build on, you know, if I ever do a, a 70 second scale jet fighter or something. Yeah. I think, I think I can leverage that. It's, it's a new trick for the bag. Yeah. Uh, kind of got, got a feel for that. So, you know, that's kind of what I did. It was, it's kind of a, a paint mule for, for a lot of stuff. Well, and, and I think it worked out well. It did. And, but I'm, I'm here to tout, <laughs> Uh, I'm uh, to not blowing sunshine up your skirt, but uh, what you did in the display of the the model. Well, I'll get I don't, to that in a minute. Okay, I don't think I'd have thought of that. Well, let's let's save that for a minute. All right, because I, I think that's that's where it was at. To be honest, yes. Uh, so on the build side, in summary, the, the, the build was really simple. Um, I would go so far to say that I'm not so sure I enjoyed the build part because you know me. Yeah, I know. You like it complex. Complex with some challenges, and there weren't any. Uh, it was challenge-free. It was very Lego-esque in the assembly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I'll be honest, during the build phase, glorified action figure crossed my mind a time or two, but... But before some listener's head explodes, but once I moved to the paint phase, I had the aha. Not quite a take on me, but uh, I, uh, I I get why there's such a fan base for this. That's where this thing could be fun, I think. And it was fun. I think it could be fun again, but I just don't know if I could like the... If somebody built it for me and I could paint it, I might do another one, but... I don't, I don't, I don't see me taking the time to build another one. Gotcha. Cause there's well, a you, lot of, there's a lot of parts. Yeah. Well, and, and it seems like you're saying that painting is where it came alive for you. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So in all that positive, you know, my least favorite part of this was in the finish process was, you know, the way they've engineered this thing, they've got all these overlapping parts to hide seams and joints. So you don't have to do any filling and all that. And that's all great. Right. Yeah. But I'm an armor guy and the, the, the wash is a staple, right? Right. Well, this thing had so many seams that weren't hard corners because there were two overlapping parts. Yeah. That this just sucked up the wash and it, and it just, it, you, you, there's very few places on the model that that would actually work huh? because there were so many, so many of the corners were actually overlapping parts that weren't glued together. Right. That there's, there's nothing for the wash to accumulate in. It just all got sucked into the, into the void, into the, into the ether between yeah. the parts. Right. So th- that was kind of weird, but now that I know that if were, were I to do another one, I, I, I could anticipate that and do something different, but I thought that was a really, that 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 when I started putting the wash on, I was like, "Uh oh, <laughs> <laughs> this isn't working." What I do now, uh, but in the end, I learned a lot, and you know, I'm probably a little bit better because of this build. Yeah. Oh yeah, I think you learn for if you're a good modeler, you learn from any build. True. Well, then there's the contest side of this, and you know, it's all for bragging rights, so. We had to unthrone those Australians, I guess. Somebody darn did. straight. That that was the goal, right? 
Well, as the Hamilton crew told us, they wish to relieve us of the build complexity and leave it to the finish and the imagination as the primary thing, right? Yeah. Well, that said, it was clear to me that all the participants were capable of something cool and something well done because the kit's not hard to build. So it's all going to come down to, to, to after the post build, right? Yeah. You know, I thought it was very likely that I was going to see a few things as this thing panned out. Uh, one being, you know, fashionable weathering and don't, don't take that as a pejorative. I don't, I don't mean it that way, but that's, you know, contempor- sure. contemporary weathering. Sure. Versus what I'll cut my teeth on. Right. So chips, scratches, dist- distressing of the paint, modulation, stains, etc. And, you know, we got that from Dave at OTB and uh, a little bit from Terry at the scale model podcast and theirs, their builds mm-hmm. and probably, James with the just making conversation. I, I tell you, Dave and Terry both chose yellow. I thought that was really interesting. Tough color. So hats off to them for that. Yes. Yellow is one of those nightmare colors to paint. But is a great palette for further weathering. Oh, yes. Absolutely. Particularly if you're doing scratching and rusting. That, that's right. Also, I thought that some, someone was going to do some otherworldly kind of bizarro camouflage scheme. And James at Just Making Conversation nailed it with his geometric camo. I absolutely love that. I've got to say that to me really was an impressive finish. And I kind of thought the geeks were going to stick to their naval aviation roots. Yeah. And I would have bet on a Jolly Roger F-14 looking thing, you know? Yeah. And But they didn't disappoint. They came in with a really nicely done uh, multi-tone gray kind of thing with some uh, insignia on it that was in the naval aviation vein. Sure. So so not unexpected geeks. So, so the bottom line is what was going to be the differentiator, right? Yeah. Well, the one thing that separates these Gundam kits from all other genres is the, the ability to easily pose the figure. Right. And I was surprised that everyone else left that card on the table for the most part. So I settled in on this Toy Story-like workbench warrior thing, and it just kind of went from there. Oh, and it it really, I mean, the moment you first texted that to me, it was, it was a revelation. It was like, I never would have thought of that. And you're right, that is going to make it stand out. And so it did. I, I put it in this triumphant fist raised pose with all this one-to-one, you know, model tools and paint and tube glue. And, you know, using the old retired cutting mat as the base kind of sealed the deal. I think, I mean, well, color me impressed that you, that you had a tube of glue that you, an old style tube of tube glue that you could, uh, that you could, uh, utilized to as part of the display uh, well i might have gone to hobby lobby and bought that just for this project because <laughs> <laughs> i haven't bought a tube of glue in freaking 40 years man i, I hear you <laughs> well it worked well i was very pleased in the end of the way it all came together and and i i i'm surprised i won yeah i i wasn't I wasn't sure what the Hamilton guys were going to be eyeing and you know, it's got, it's, it's got its warts. I, I might've run roughshod over a few things, but I don't know. I like Megamind said, man, it's all in the presentation. Maybe I don't know. 
<laughs> well, you you clearly did something right. Uh, you know, and there are not many people who can say that they won an award with their first Gundam that they ever built. So now my question is, are you going to take it to Indy and actually enter it? Ah, uh, yeah, I think so. Why not? That'll be cool. No, now there's a, there's that- a couple of areas I may go revisit, like those those fuel tubes on the back, the yeah. ones that are the, with the yellow ends on them. Yeah, I want to redo those. Uh, (laughs) you you can never leave well enough alone well you know i didn't learn my acrylic wash lesson when i started weathering those yeah yeah that's 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 the low point of that build i think but uh you know all the builds were great i had a great time I, i i was sitting there we'd been to the parks in the morning i was out in these adirondack chairs by the lake at the resort sitting there watching the live feed from stewart at the scale model podcast. And I must've been on a little bit of a delay. So I'm sitting there waiting with bated breath to see who's going to win this thing. And, uh, Evan McCallum texts me that I'd won. (laughs) (laughs) So thanks to the Panzermeister for uh, spilling the beans a couple of, a couple of seconds early. (laughs) I was going to say you in the future texted you in the present to let you knew that you knew know that you had won in the future. It's like a Terminator movie, man. I know, I know. <laughs> that was that was good fun. I I liked it a lot. And maybe I'm saying that because they happened to pick me as the winner. I don't know, but it it was fun. I enjoyed it. I didn't know how it was going to turn out. I was really pleased with the way mine turned out in the end, whether it won or didn't win. But uh, you know, all we get's bragging rights. So I'm going to brag for a year. Oh, absolutely. And then absolutely. Uh, the, the competition is going to get a little more stiff next year because they're going to include a few more podcasts. So, yeah. And well, God, God only knows. I have I have a plea to those of you at IPMS Hamilton. Please, something easy. Snap tight car kit. Perfectly acceptable. Something easy because I don't think Mike's going to let me make him do this two years in a row. Well, I can't do it two years in a row. We established that. Oh, is that is that absolutely forbidden by the rules? Well, so okay. far, but I'm not done pleading our case, man. <laughs> Wait a minute. Don't you trust me? It's, it's not that. It's just the recurrence of us having, how many we got to yep. build versus everybody else. Yeah, really. Plastic <laughs> Posse podcast once every, what is it, half decade? Yes. <laughs> Oh well, so that's that's my bench top. I'm gonna save the zip. Well, wait, space a, wait. For, oh, oh, okay. We gonna, can talk. We can talk about it. I was gonna say. I think you need to talk about the zips a little. I don't mind you. You. I had a short bench, so you go long here because I really like what you've done with the zip space, and I, 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 this is the first time you've done it this way. And I'd really like to hear a little bit about it because it really, really looks good. Well, to quote the Mandalorian, this is the way. (laughs) Uh, I really like the way this is turning out. You know, I painted this whole thing black. Anybody who's been on our Facebook page and now our Instagram feeds has seen what I'm doing here. Uh, Totally blacked it out further than I meant to, I even had to go back and black out the revetment walls. I, I, you know, I've repainted those. I think I talked about that last time, so I won't talk about that too much. Uh, I've got, I got to the point now where I've painted the grass green again and I've filled in all the earth areas with a custom mix of color that I like. Yeah. And now I'm going back over that acrylic paint that to me, a paint mix with, uh, enamel washes and 
adding depth and uh, shadow to the earth tones. So now are you going to do, are you planning on doing, uh, again, not to name check him again, but what, uh, uh, Martin Kovac does and go back and paint individual stones to make them pop out. Uh, I'm probably not going to go to that degree because I've kind of got a uniform. It's it's not uniform, but I've got the grass area out in front of the revetment. Right. Right. And then there's a strip of about a scale two to three feet around that where it's bare, where they've thrown loose dirt. Right. So I'm probably going to, you know, shade that a little bit darker because there's not many places in the world you can dig down a couple of feet and not have the soil color and texture change on you. Oh, absolutely. So, and usually darker. Yes. Once you get past the the topsoil and get into some clay, a lot of times that's true. Right. Uh, So I'm just going to keep building up these washes to to shade this, this earth tone and I'm going to get to a point of like, and I'm going to stop. And then I'm going to start gluing on all the the small bits and bobs. So are you convinced that this is the way forward in regard to bases? In other words, that that, uh, this experience has convinced you that painting it all black and then going back and, for want of a better word, recoloring everything is, is the way to go? Uh, I'm going to say yes. Now I've always overpainted my groundwork and my grass, but I've never started from black before. Right. And what this does, it adds a ton of volume to the static grass. Yeah, I think so. You know, that's an effect that, I mean, I've seen this done. I've seen what you've done and I never thought about it adding volume to the static grass as being a benefit. That wouldn't have been one of the things I would have thought that it would do. Now, just cutting my teeth on this sort of thing, uh, primarily with the static grass applicator, there's a couple of things I, I want to make sure on the next one I do a little different. Like, uh, I didn't get close enough to the edge with the glue. So there's kind of a a bare, at the edge of the diorama base, there's a there's a an area where there's no grass. Right. That's, that's a little too, I could probably go back and fix it, but I don't think it's that apparent. I'm, no, I'm, I'm, you're, 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 you are your own worst critic. Oh yes, absolutely. So, you know where every flaw in your own model is. Uh, but I think it looks pretty good. So washes sure. over the next few days, hopefully start gluing the other stuff on soon after. And then I got to do the final weathering on the gun wheels and lower carriage to match what I've done on the groundwork and uh, right. put, it, put it all together. Yeah. Got a couple more little bobs to paint. I need to get on that because it's tedious. And then, then you're going to have to bring the Paul back and paint it, but then you're going to have to also start construction on something brand new. That's right. I can't wait to hear it. Well, that's my halftime report. All right. All right. Uh, so, Mike, uh, there have been some modeling announcements over the last few weeks, and uh, – I've been following them as with interest. I have some faves and yawns, and I'm wondering if maybe you do too. Well, I do too, Dave. My first fave is Tacom's V1 and V1 launch site. I was going to mention that too. I'm glad you did. Well, you, you can you can throw your comments in, but I, you know, it's a big scale, thirty fifth scale for that. So the thing's like a meter long. Yes. So that's that's probably not for me. I'd probably rather do it in seventy second scale. 
Model Collect does it in seventy uh, seconds, and they do. So that's if I if I were I to do this, I would probably go for the seventy second scale route. But man, somebody's going to do this, and it's going to make me end up buying it. Oh yeah, well, just think of the po- the diorama possibilities. I mean, it it has all sorts of possible because that. It, you know, there. If you go out on YouTube and all, you can actually see the instructional films where they, you know, showed them the the entire launch process. There is just tons of diorama potential for that kit. And I got when Model Collect released it in seventy second scale. I got it right away. Um, I've already built one V1 and I wanted to do at least one more. So I was happy to see it in 70 second scale. And, and I think that's, I think it's going to be a winner for them. I have zero doubt. I do too. And I, you know, I've, I've got that book that's published by Schiffer years ago, V missiles of third Reich. I have it too. And, you know, you know, I may have a Bronco 35th scale V1 in the, in in the stash. (laughs) Not only do you have one, you gave one to me. <laughs> so if you don't have it in the stash and need it, you're going to give it I, back. I'll be happy to give it back. Well, what's your first fave if that wasn't it? Well, that, that certainly that certainly was one that I would have mentioned that you didn't, but I knew you were going to. Uh, my my first one is Arma Hobby. I gotta tell you, I am. If if I was locked on a desert island and could only build one manufacturer's kits for the rest of my life uh, while I was modeling, I used to say it would be Tamiya. I'm not so sure that answer isn't becoming Arma Hobby because they are just hitting home run after home run. They have announced a 72nd scale KI-84 Frank the Japanese Army's uh, last piston engine interceptor of World War II, uh, very much uh, the equal to the P-51 Mustang. And it's really needed because the KI-84 that is most commonly built out there is the old 1980s Hasegawa kit, and which was just like many Hasegawa kits of the time. It's a fine kit, but the detail is minimal, particularly the uh, interior detail uh, and the wheel well detail, stuff like that. And uh, I have zero doubt that Arma is just going to absolutely kill this one. And I will tell you, it will be one of my immediate purchase items. Well, my next one's a a fave, I guess. And it's back to... uh... Mr. Church's uh, 3D print question in his listener mail. T-Rex Studios had some interesting sprockets and swing arms for various German vehicles yeah. in, th- in 3D print. And they're like disassembled, like s- they're being serviced or maintenanced, right? Right. So uh, that's pretty cool because it's limited appeal. And it's probably a good medium to do stuff like that in. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool stuff on the 3D print 3D print spectrum there. I is it stuff I'm gonna buy? I, I don't know, but it's just it's really cool and I can see it being a benefit. 
Well, I, it opens up the diorama possibilities because, again, you know, we're used to seeing models of the tank fully functioning, you know, in in perfect running order, etc. Whereas the truth is, a lot more time was spent with maintenance, and you know, these things. The Sherman was rather famous for being bulletproof reliable as far as, you know, they did a test where they drove, I think it was an entire uh, combat command of Shermans from one end of England to the other because they wanted to see what the breakdown rate was. And the breakdown rate turned out to be like one, one and a half percent, an incredibly low percentage. These things were just that reliable. But that was the exception to the rule. In World War II, tanks were not something that you could get in and drive long distances like you would a car. And so a lot of these things spent a lot of time. I mean, if you were a tank crewman, you spent a lot of time covered in grease and dirt, you know, pounding on on tensioning gear or greasing road wheels or whatever. And so that just opens up those possibilities. You got another fave? Yes, I do. Roy Sutherland, who runs uh, and has run Barracuda Cows uh, for 14 years now, has just released some new 72nd scale stuff. Um, if you've never seen Roy stuff, his resin casting is its the standard by which basically I compare all other resin casting. He does wheels, he does detail sets, does other stuff, but uh, most famously for his wheels in 72nd, 48th, 32nd. He's released a whole bunch of new Spitfire and Sea Fury wheels in 72nd scale. He's actually also released them in other scales too. And then he also has released Vacuform blown hoods, the sliding hood that's the blown bubble style canopy for the Spitfire. And he's just released all of that all at once. Uh, great additions to his line. And if you haven't seen his stuff, go to his website and take a look at it. And uh, I'm telling you, whatever you buy from him, you're not going to be disappointed. Well, I got another fave. I do too. So go on, man. Just all these Ukrainian announcements since they're... You and me both, buddy. It's not so much that I'm, I'm interested in building in this stuff. It's just that war was thrust upon them. Now they've announced a... By Rockstar Drone. Yes, that's exactly the one. There's a couple of figure offerings. Yes. Mini Arts touting an, uh, uh, a BTR something. I don't remember, but an BTR-4E. Fighting, infantry fighting vehicle. And that is, a, that is a vehicle that is actually unique to Ukraine. It is, it is home manufactured in Ukraine. Even Archer in North Carolina is printing uh ukrainian flags now so that's impressive yes yep uh and and on the good news front a lot of the ukrainian manufacturers within the last week or two have announced that they're back up and running uh which in the middle of a war-torn country now you know ukraine has had some success in the last week and god bless them i'm, I'm thrilled to see it 
but it's not like the war is over there. And so, uh, I'm, I'm super impressed. Uh, yeah, my, my faves are, I was going to mention the Bakhtiar drone, which clear prop and big plane kits has announced in 72nd scale. And in fact, I think clear props also announced it in 48th and, and maybe even 35th scale. In addition, that, uh, mini art, announced that BTR-4E in 35th scale. IBG, which is a Polish company, has announced the same same vehicle in 72nd scale. I can't wait. There are definitely things I'm interested in getting and actually modeling. Got a yawn? Amazingly enough, I do not have a real yawn for this because I've got so many good faves. I didn't, I didn't come up with a yawn. It's, uh, you know... Maybe I'm a cockeyed optimist again because everything's going well, and and uh, uh, so maybe I'm not looking for a yawn. So, do you have a yawn? I do, and it's back to Chris Church's uh, email. Okay, my yawn is 3D printed tracks. I was. That's an interesting. You know, that's a subject we could almost have uh, a mini discussion on. In fact, uh, we're going to speak with Evan coming up in an epi- uh, upcoming episode. And I'll be interested to hear you and he talk about 3D printed tracks. Well, it's pacing to overtake new paint lines is, is the next uh, us to marketing saturation deal, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like every week somebody else is doing the tracks and like there's so much overlap in, in what's being offered. And they're, they're certainly not any cheaper than injection molded or metal tracks. Right. Do I need to get some to see if they're better? I think between 3D printed tracks and metal tracks, I think they offer an assembly advantage, but a paint and finish disadvantage. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't know. I'll be interested. You know, uh, again, uh, on Evan's YouTube channel, he has a number of YouTube videos specifically on different, metal tracks or different injection track for want of a better word kits so i'll be interested to see and it's interested to hear you and him talk about what's coming out and and certainly you're right everybody seems to be jumping into this field with both feet nobody's doing it you know uh one toe at a time they're coming out with just you know, it's like Stugs. All of a sudden, everybody's got all new Stugs and every possible version. So now you're start, starting to see all these different 3D printed tracks. So I'm looking forward to that discussion in the future. Well, that's my yawn. I, I don't have anything else. Okay. Well, I'm done with that. So let's get on to our special segment then. Dr. Strangebrush is back, Dave. The doctor is in the house we're gonna be talking about clear coats yep and the death of future i guess so let's get into it well davy's back we got dr strangebrush in the house again dr john miller how you doing hanging in there how about yourself i'm i'm good and i think we're gonna be talking about a little clear coat action tonight yes we are yes we are and I think Dave's got an announcement that makes makes this a little bit timely. This does. This is real timely because my favorite clear coat, or at least gloss clear coat, for 
ever since I got back into modeling was uh, Future and then Pledge with Future Shine uh, once uh, once it got acquired and rebranded. Just in the last few days, the company that manufactures it has announced that it is no more, uh, that the the product was developed when everybody had those vinyl floors that not linoleum but the the vinyl cut out floors that you then would use the future to to reshine uh you know every week or every two weeks and that flooring option has just disappeared to the point where apparently the manufacturer just doesn't sell enough of it to make it worth worthwhile so i'm particularly interested to hear what Dr. Strangebrush has to say about other clear coat brands and other clear coat options that may, uh, may help us transition. Well, and I think uh, across the great schism of clear coating, half the modeling community is bawling in their pillows and half of them are <laughs> rejoicing, thinking it's about time. You know, I shot Future for years and years, and I did uh, some pretty good work with it. I was always pretty happy with it. It has has some tricks to it, and uh, we can talk about that. I'm sure we will. Um, one thing, I had a bottle of Future probably for, I would say, somewhere on six or seven years before I finally used it up. And um, I can beat that, uh, Dr. Miller. Yeah, you had, you had, uh, you had one longer? Uh, the... My first bottle of Future was just used up last year. I had it almost 25 years. Wow. And it was still good, right? Oh, and it was still good to the very end. Yeah, um, so that's what I was going to recommend. Uh, after hearing this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to head out tomorrow and, and buy a bottle. And uh, <laughs> considering the shelf life, you know, and how much you use it, a bottle or two of that stuff would probably last you a good long time. Yeah, I've got a full bottle, and I figure even at my increased building rate now that I'm doing this and now that Mike is mocking me if I don't get models finished, uh, <laughs> even at an increased building rate, I figure this current bottle's going to last me another 15 years or so. Well, I'm, I'm, I've used it. I'm not married to it. I don't use gloss coats that often, but uh, I don't know. It's going to be a funny discussion across the model sphere when the news of that is propagated i'm sure yes it will yes it will there's <laughs> going to be some broken hearts out there yeah well john we'll just let you roll man where do you want to start okay well let's talk about clear coats and before we actually get to talking about lacquer or acrylic clear coats let's talk about how you may want to think about configuring your airbrush to shoot a clear coat um and a, a lot of this if not all of this material is um in uh, uh tips and tricks volume three um, matching the tip size, air pressure, and paint dilution to the job. And that, uh, that article is on the homepage of Model Paint Solutions. <clears throat> so if you'd like to review after you hear this, just hit that, hit that one article. And most of what we're going to talk about is going to be in there. So first and foremost, um, what you want to be thinking about to configure your brush is getting the right size tip. Now, one of the things to think about is for every tip, it has an ideal window that gives you the best atomization. And think in your mind's eye when you've been airbrushing and just kind of playing around on a piece of paper or plastic, and you pull the lever back to, let's say, 40 or 50, maybe 60% throw, and you get a nice, a nice cone of spray, which gives you a nice line. Once you get past 
60 into 70, 80, 90% throw on the lever, you'll start noticing stipple appearing on the outside of that cone. Mm-hmm. And stipple, what I mean is just drops of unatomized uh, paint. That's what you want to try to avoid when you're shooting a clear coat because those unatomized drops will hit the finish and dry and add a texture to it. And if you're going for a gloss coat, that's the last thing you want to do is add a texture to it. So first thing you want to think about is therefore probably shooting a tip that is larger than the tip that you use for your normal work. Now, the average size tip um, that I use for you know general work like cockpits, wheel wells, that kind of stuff is a, a 0.2 to a 0.3 millimeter tip. When I start shooting uh, clear coats, unless the model is is very, very small, I'll usually go to a 0.3 or a 0.4 size tip, usually a 0.4. Um, mm-hmm. And again, that is to ensure that you get uh, you get optimal a- uh, atomization of the clear coat, you know, in that ideal window of, of lever throw. Quick question. Sure. When you change tips, do you change needles to match or? Well, yeah, most most airbrushes uh, are paired in that you've got a, a needle and a nozzle, right? Right. A WADA is like that. A harder Steenbeck is like that. I'm going to fall into um, referring to the harder Steenbeck size tips, which are 0.15, 0.2, 0.4, and 0.6, because those are the ones I've used for the last 20 years. Sure. Um, and those are the ones I use regularly. Um, but uh, yeah, to answer your question, yeah, uh, nozzles and needles are usually paired and you change them both out. Now I understand that with some brushes that that's a bit of work. Um, if you're, if you're driving on a WADA, you're going to, you know, be grabbing the little, uh, nozzle wrench and you're having to, you know, deal with the little threads and such. It's worth the time to do that. Um, in order to get a larger nozzle on the brush to shoot your clear coats, you'll notice right off that you'll get a smoother finish if you're not pushing a small nozzle too hard. Um, and just let me back up and say, uh, with regards to changing tips, both of you guys have harder Steenbecks, um, so you know there is no wrench or threads involved. Um, right. The brass nozzle simply fits into the air cap, the air cap screws into the brush, and you're done. You yep. slip, slip the needle in, and you're rocking and rolling. So some brushes are easier to change over than others, but either way, it's worth your time to uh, to uh, to change that tip into a larger one when you get to your clear coat. So let me give you an idea on the size tip and the size model. So if you're doing a lot of 172nd scale single seat, let's say Spitfire size, Mustang size, you can probably get away with a 0.2 or a 0.3 tip. If you start doing larger P47, or excuse me, larger 72nd scale models like a P47, um, or any 172nd scale twin, you're probably going to want to go to a 0.4 tip in order to get you know the best coverage. One thirty fifth scale 0.4 tip is just about the perfect size for your average 135th scale tank. One thirty second, you're going to be looking at 0.4 to 0.6. You know, 132nd scale airplane model can have quite a wingspan, and uh, you're going to want to match the size tip to the to the to the size of the model that you're shooting. So. If I were doing a, let's say, a, a 132nd scale Stuka, which I built years and years and years ago, which has a pretty good wingspan, I'd probably be mounting up a 0.6 size tip on my harder Steenbeck. If you're doing 148 scale armor or 148 scale cars, usually a 0.4 tip is about the right size, 0.3 to 0.4. And not to forget the ship ball, shipbuilders out there, even as some of the smaller scale um, ship models, the hull itself is a, a sizable piece of plastic. So that being the case, 
unless it's a very, very small model, let's say not more than four or five inches long, um, you should probably be thinking about a 0.3 or 0.4 size tip in order to, uh, in order to clear coat uh, a hull or, uh, for a, the average size ship model. Does that make sense? Yeah. Now, let me ask you, because we're saying clear coat. Yes. Is there a difference for you as far as tip size when you're spraying a gloss as opposed to a semi-matte or a flat? Not really, although I, apl- okay. although I apply them entirely differently. Gloss versus we'll, we'll a, get to a, that. A, I've, yeah. I, I figured you'd tell us about that. Yeah, um, but not really. If I'm going to be shooting a flat and the model was big enough that I used, let's say, a 0.4 size tip for the gloss, I'll usually mount up a 0.5, 0.4 size tip for the flat or the satin as well. I usually don't shoot flat. I prefer satin. Sure. But we'll get to that. So um, Now, the other thing you want to think about is since you're going to be going to a larger size tip in order to get optimal atomization, you probably want to drive that tip a little harder than you normally do. So if you're used to shooting 10 or 12 pounds and you put a 0.4 tip on and you're shooting gloss, I might up that to 15, maybe 16, 17 pounds. Again, is that just due to volume? It's due to the larger size tip, and it just hedges your bet that you're going to get full atomization and not get any droplets formed, which is going to mar the finish. Gotcha. So now let's talk about clear coats. Now that you've configured the brush, you've got the right size tip, you've got your pressure maybe a little higher than normal because you're running a bigger size tip. Now, the next question, of course, is clear coat, lacquer or acrylic? And there are good examples of both out there. And some of the things you may want to consider when deciding whether you want to go with a lacquer or an acrylic gloss coat. Now, I'm talking in particular now a gloss coat that you would put on prior to decals. Yeah. Okay. So thinking ahead, right? And I think we touched on this before. Um, Some guys think that in order to get your decals down, you know, perfectly fine with no bubbles or anything, you want the shiniest, smoothest uh, gloss coat you can get. And that does help a lot without a doubt. But if you are using decal solvents like Microset, Microsol, um, Solvacet, those solvents do a pretty good job, if properly used, of melting the decal onto the surface. So what I found after years of playing around with this is... Since I'm using decal solvents, I actually prefer a gloss coat that is stable. doesn't necessarily have to be super shiny as long as it's chemically stable and can withstand the solvents that I'm going to be using um, to put on my decals. Now, you brought up Future. Now, Future is one that, you, as you guys know, you have to be a little mindful of. Um, if you leave those solvents on a Future uh, gloss coat too long, as you know, it turns white and milky and starts to break down. And mm-hmm. the best thing to do at that point is to just walk away, go watch a Johnny Carson, do something else for a while, <laughs> let that dry out because it will usually dry perfectly fine. The worst thing you can yeah. do is try to push it down with a Q-tip or something. You've just pretty much ruined your gloss coat at that point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So uh, so something to consider, that, therefore, is stability. And I made do with Future for years and years and years, and I had to learn to be very careful to not leave the solvents on too long. And sometimes, you know, I still made a mistake. The acrylic gloss coat that I've been using a lot for about the last two or three years is the Mission uh, Clear Primer. And it's, it's from the Mission Models paint range. And uh, I think we've talked about this briefly before. The Clear Primer has all of the goodness that the normal Mission Primers have, save pigment. 
it drives it dries basically like a semi gloss. Gotcha. And I find uh, I make that up at thirty percent uh, mission uh, clear primer and sixty percent mission thinner with five percent Liquitex uh, Flow Aid and five percent Liquitex Slow Dry. So when you put those together, you end up with a clear coat that almost shoots like a lacquer. It's got enough uh, flow and slow in it that it just goes on the model and, 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 and moves very, very nicely. But the thing I like best about it is it's a polyurethane. So once that is dry and cured, so drying is going to be to the point where you can actually touch it. Curing is going to take another 24 hours for the paint sure. to crosslink. So once you let the, the CP30, uh, clear primer 30%, uh, cure for 24 to 36 hours, you can put set, you can put sol, you can put solvacet, you can put whatever you want on it, and it is not going to turn white and milky. It is uh, a very, very um, tenacious finish once dry. Can't you also, because of the fact that it's polyurethane, can't you also use like oils to wash the details yeah i was over th- it. that's the next place i was going that's exactly oh, where okay. i was going yeah so sorry no that's all right that's all right you, 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 yeah just beat me to the chase there <laughs> all right um but th- yeah that's where i was going next so in addition to being stable and able to withstand the decal solvents you're also now set up since you're using an acrylic uh clear coat to use enamel panel liners and washes afterwards with little to no worry about the enamel eating into the finish And this is an old trick of changing the chemistry between your gloss coat and your washes. So if you end with a uh, acrylic gloss coat, which is what I normally do, you can go right to Tamiya panel liner, which are my favorite panel liners, which are enamel based, and they won't go through CP30 at all. Um, I actually use Mona Lisa uh, 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 odorless uh, thinner. To, to wipe the excess uh, panel liner off with. Yeah. And that stuff doesn't touch CP30 whatsoever. If you use that on an enamel or a lacquer gloss coat and you leave it on there too long, it'll start eating into that finish. So you want to be mindful there. Now, let's say you ended with, um, let's say you ended with uh, an acrylic, excuse me, let's say you ended with a lacquer gloss coat. You may want to think at that point about switching over to water-based washes or water-based panel liners so you don't have to worry about the meeting into your gloss coat finish. To summarize, just changing the chemistries between gloss coat and wash or panel liner can save you a lot of heartbreak on the end there. Now, you said that you you re- you really like the CP30 because of its chemistry. Uh, are there times where you you actually choose to go with a uh, a lacquer type gloss or lacquer type clear coat? Sure, sure. So I shot Gunze uh, Gunze gloss for years and Gunze leveling thinner. You know, enough said, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. That stuff is rock hard when it's dry. Um, it's in Gunze leveling thinner or Unicorn Tears. And right. you get great leveling, great shine. Um, I will still use that when I want to shoot a, uh, a lacquer gloss coat. The one I've been using a lot lately, and it's not surprising because all of the AK Real Colors are just awesome to use, as is their gloss coat. Oh, really? I hadn't tried their gloss coat. I love their satin coat. We're getting ahead of ourselves, but I really oh. love their satin coat. But, we'll uh, get there. Yeah, but I shot the I shot the AK gloss on that Firebee drone 
that uh, it's a build article on the site uh, a few months back. And uh, I really like that stuff. It reminds me of Gunze once it's dry. It's hard as nails. Yeah. So th- there's there's two there's two lacquer base that I've used. I've also used Alclad uh, gloss for years and years and years. Um, so there's another option for you. Well, what about their Aqua gloss? That's a that's a product that comes up a lot. Uh, it is, and you know, uh, I was bouncing back and forth between Aqua gloss and Future um, for years, and I think, in, at least in my hands, those two behave similarly. In that, um, you can get a beautiful, uh, really shiny finish with Aqua gloss. Um, however, even after the stuff is cured two or three days, you have to be mindful to not leave the decal solvents on too long, or it, it too will start turning white and milky on you. Any other glosses out there? Let's go back. Uh, I know, heaven help us, but uh, there's, I'm sure there's there's some out there in the in the listening community using Tester's gloss coat. Oh yeah, either. so so let's go through a couple, let's go through some of them here. So um, let's go back and and uh, let's touch on the lacquers. So we've got Alclad, we've got Gunze, AK um, is is like Tamaya in that it can be shot in a lacquer based uh, thinner and does and gives you beautiful results. So does Tamaya clear. That is a very good gloss. Tamaya gloss, especially shot in leveling thinner, gives you a very, very shiny surface. So that's that's one that you can put into the lacquer category, as you know, because it's being an acrylic lacquer, you can bring it up in Gunze leveling thinner. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of a rundown for, for lacquers. Um, I, I want to also mention Splash, if you guys have heard of Splash. That is... Uh, no. Yeah, that's a uh, a series of paints uh, used by uh, by uh, car modelers a lot. I have a friend that uses uh, Splash, and uh, their clear coat has a hardening agent that has to be added to the uh, the clear plus a reducer. And uh, I've not used it I've not used it yet. It is a hardcore lacquer, but it's one more option if you want to go with again, you know, a real hard lacquer based gloss is the Splash system. So that's it for lacquer. So let's think about acrylics. So we've talked a, bit, a little bit about future. We talked a little bit about aqua gloss. Aqua gloss, I would shoot neat straight out of the brush with maybe a little bit of Liquitex Flow Aid, two or three percent by volume added. Yeah, like a good bourbon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, um, when it comes to future, I shot Future for years neat, straight out of the bottle. And then one day I started experimenting with it, and I found that if you dilute that stuff with about 25% Vallejo thinner, it breaks the surface tension of the Future, and it goes on beautifully. So uh, when I was using Future, that's how I was shooting it. 30% Vallejo thinner, 70% Future, dry coat followed by a wet coat. Beautiful, beautiful glossy shine. In addition to that, other other acrylics to think about is um, Vallejo. I shot the Vallejo gloss for years. That that too is a nice gloss at about thirty percent in, in their in their thinner, sixty percent thinner. And I also put as usual five percent uh, flow aid and five percent slow dry. Let me digress for a moment and talk about the flow aid and the slow dry because whatever acrylic gloss that you want to shoot, whether it's Tamaya, Mission, Vallejo, Life Color, whatever. A gloss in particular will, will benefit greatly by the addition of about 5% flow aid and 5% slow dry. Both of those reagents will work to make the gloss level. They'll keep the gloss wet or open longer, which will allow it to move and settle on the model. And you want it to move because as that gloss moves and settles, it gets, it gets smoother and smoother. And that's what gives you the shine. So 
If you're using an acrylic gloss, um, you may want to think about adding the flow and the slow to about 5% to it, and it will give you a much shinier finish. One note of caution, since you're adding, adding a, a paint retarder to it, you're probably looking at a longer dry time before that gloss is ready to be decaled. But if you're looking for a really shiny gloss, it's probably worth the extra 24 hours to get it dry. Um, with the mission gloss, for, go, for guys who are out there shooting mission gloss, I like that at about 30% gloss, 60% thinner. Again, um, a 5% flow and 5% slow aid. Yeah, that's about it. For, I think I hit the major acrylics, unless you guys can think of one. No, I, I think that covers them pretty darn good. But <laughs> but let me ask you one other thing. Sure. And I'm sure you, this is probably the next thing you're going to talk about. Sure. Distance from the model. Yeah, we're going to talk about that when it comes to application. Gotcha. We're going to talk okay. about that. Yeah. So. See, I keep jumping ahead. <laughs> yeah, I know. So <clears throat> now there's two different glosses to think about here, right, though. We've got the gloss that we're going to use for our decals versus the gloss that maybe you're going to want to use if you're a, a car builder, in which case you're looking for that 10-foot shine. If you're looking for that 10-foot shine, you're, and you're shooting a lacquer-based gloss coat, you're going to want to think about, again, a drying retarder. And there really isn't any better right out of the bottle than, uh, than leveling thinner, the unicorn tears. Um, mm -hmm. That will make practically any lacquer-based gloss sh give you a, a, that 10-foot deep uh, shine uh, you know, if it's properly applied. Now, let's say you're, you want to stick with acrylics you know, for, for many of the obvious reasons. Again, one of the things you're going to want to do there is add a, a, a slow drying agent and a flow agent. So again, that acrylic uh, gloss coat will move and settle on the model once it's shot and will give you that nice shine. Now, one of the things I've started using recently uh, is an AK product called High Compatibility Thinner. This is an interesting thinner. It is basically an uh, alcohol glycol mix. And I find that, uh, first and foremost, um, it doesn't smell anywhere near as bad as straight lacquers. It has a slightly sweet alcohol smell. Um, so that's first and foremost. But practically all of these lacquer uh, gloss coats will shoot beautifully in high compatibility thinner, as will the acrylic gloss coats as well. And if you're going to try the high compatibility thinner, um, uh, that's what I use with the AK gloss. Um, again, 5% slow, 5% flow to the high compatibility thinner, and you'll get a beautiful, hard uh, uh, gloss coat, especially if you're using the AK gloss with that. So that's about it. So that's it for gloss. Um, now let's talk about uh, applying the gloss. So if you're applying a lacquer, as you guys have, have you know, we've discussed before, Oftentimes, lacquers can be put on as a straight wet coat. They hit the model, they move, you know, they, they, they level themselves. And if you are shooting a lacquer, you could very well get away with shooting it just straightly as a wet coat. If, on the other hand, you're shooting a, an, an acrylic gloss coat, oftentimes I find it's best to shoot first a preparatory dry coat. And again, we've talked about that in the past. And for that, you're going to want to hold the brush maybe five to seven inches away from the model. You're only going to use about 20 or 30% lever throw. You're going to put a very dry, tacky coat of your gloss down, okay? And then before that dries, you're going to come back and hit that, that tacky coat with a wet fill coat. And what that will do is that the tacky coat acts, acts like a catch 
for the wet coat coming on top of it. So it allows you to get more gloss on the model without endangering, you know, without running the risk of, of spidering or running, but getting enough gloss on the model so that it levels and, and smooths out and gives you that nice shiny gloss coat. So in short, and this is really going to be, you know, broad stroke here in short, lacquer gloss coats, uh, tend to tolerate being put on directly as a wet coat more than acrylics. For most acrylic gloss coats, I prefer putting them on as a dry followed by a wet coat. So that's it for, for, for gloss, I think. Let me ask you a, a question for all the ham-handed people like me. What's the most common mistake you see when people apply a gloss coat? Too much? Too heavy? Too light? Funny enough, the most common mistake is using too small a tip. Okay. Yep. And you can tell by just looking at the finish, you know, whether it, the, the, the tip was pushed too hard or, or, you know, was sufficiently large. So that's usually, that's usually the biggest mistake or the most common mistake. What effect does that give you on the gloss coat that you can look at it and go, okay, that's, that was too small a tip? Streaky? You can know it has a texture to it. Gotcha. Those little droplets coming off the cone on the periphery there hit the model, right? And, yeah. and you know, unless you've got that really, really wet. Now, if you've got it soaking wet, you might get away with it, right? I mean, that's just right. the way it works. It blends in. Yeah, it blends in. But if you don't have it soaking wet, um, those little droplets on the outside of the cone will leave a, a, a kind of a, a texture to the finish that you can pick up if you bounce light off the, off the model. So that's for, for gloss coats. Now let's talk about... Um, satins and flats. And I'm going to try not to get on my soapbox here and talk about how, in my humble opinion, aircraft models are usually shot too flat, um, especially the smaller scales. Uh, I, I'm a firm believer in the smaller the model, um, the, the, the shinier you want it to be, or I should say the less flat you want it to be. Um, mm -hmm. the, you know, the, with a, such a small surface area, you have less light coming off the model. And, uh, I, I'm convinced after playing around with my own stuff that if you leave them a little on the shinier side, especially if they're small, you can actually see the detail and the color better than if it's flat. Sure. It's kind of, uh, kind of like scale effect for color, but for gloss or flat coat. Exactly. Exactly. So I very rarely use flat because of that. Um, I prefer satin. And for years and years, I'm going to give a shout out to Vallejo satin. Um, that was my choice for a, a, a final coat for, I would say, oh gosh, five, eight years. That's really good stuff. And I would shoot that uh, Vallejo satin. I shoot all my satins about 20% satin, 80% thinner. And that's hmm. not a lot of satin, I know. And the reason I, I drop my satin down that low is because it makes it less likely that I'll overshoot on the satin and get the frosty donut look. So you can always go back and add more, but you can't take it away once you've done it. Exactly. Exactly. So I'll, I'll, uh, I'll mix 20% satin, 80% thinner. Now, here's something to think about. If you're shooting a satin or a flat, you don't want any flow aid or slow dry in there. Right. Cause the, yeah, because the last thing you want to do is to have that flatter satin level. Because it'll turn glossy. Exactly. Or it won't go sufficiently uh, satin for you. So Set. leave both the slow and the flow out, um, just straight thinner, 20% satin. 
And I usually uh, hold the model, I would say, uh, gosh, probably a foot, probably a foot, 10 inches to mm -hmm. a foot away from the airbrush. And I put very light, misty, dry coats on the model. And I do so while watching the model under very bright light. So I can see how much gloss I'm cutting down with each pass. Again, so I don't go over and get it too flat or even uh, over beyond that and get the, you know, the, the donut frosty look. Sure. So that's how I'll, I'll, uh, I'll approach uh, satins and flats, about 20% with a light, light dry coat. And then lastly, something to think about is the sequencing of, of what, gloss, what gloss coat or what, what clear coat, you know, um, sequence during the building of the model. So for me, if I have the model painted, I will go into what I call gloss coat one. And for me, that's usually CP30, or I might use the AK if I want to shoot something in a lacquer. Let that dry for 24 to 36 hours. So it's cured, not just dry. I'll put right. my decals on and I'll use usually set and saw and the AK decal adapter. Um, you mean alien blood? Alien, exactly. Alien blood. Exactly right. And uh, after I put my decals on, I'll let those decals dry overnight. Then I'll go back in with gloss coat number two. And that is a gloss coat. And mm -hmm. for me, I, I do that so that the, the edges of the decals get, uh, get blended in a little bit there. And it just right. helps hide the decal film. After gloss coat number two has dried, and I'm doing, and if I'm doing weathering with pastels or weathering powders, that's when I'll shoot my satin coat. And uh, I think this is something that we discussed at least once before: the, the difficulty in, in doing weathering with pastels or or powders if you have a gloss finish to work on. Right, it won't stick. Yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no friction between the the brush carrying the pigments and the uh, surface of the model. It just wipes right off. So if right. I'm going to be going to to uh, weathering with pastels and pigments, I will shoot my my satin coat. I'll let that dry again overnight. Then I will do my my uh, my weathering, and uh, then I'll usually do a very very light satin coat seal. I don't always do that, but sometimes I will do that just to blend everything in. And that's about the last clear coat I use on a kit. You make a point that I want to emphasize because I think uh, modelers tend to be impatient. And getting the concept, the difference in the concept between dry and cured, that people, you know, they're anxious to get on. The decaling is the fun part. Uh, you know, the the models headed toward completion. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm, I'm with Mike. It is. <laughs> <laughs> well, for a lot of people, decaling is the fun part because of the fact that suddenly the model looks like the finished product is going to look. Yep. Okay. That that's once you, especially for aircraft, once you get those markings on, yep. yeah, it looks like what you were trying to build. Yep. So, but I think, I think because people are impatient, they think if it's dry to the touch, it's okay to move on to the next step. And, and yeah. the surface may be dry, but the, but the coat underneath is not cured. Right. Right. And that's, that's the big mistake that, especially if you're using an acrylic, which yeah. is going to take longer to dry than a, than a, than a lacquer, 
Yeah, the mistake right. is not is not waiting till the paint actually has cross-linked, chemically cross-linked to itself onto the surface of the model. And that's when it's stable enough to to withstand decal solvents. So gotcha. and that usually takes 24 to 36 hours. Yeah, particularly for acrylics. Yeah, particularly for acrylics. Particularly if for acrylics, if you have added uh, slow dry and flow aid to it, which is going to slow it down uh, even more so. So, you know, right. you, you may have to wait 36 hours, but, you know, that's when you work on something else or you clean your airbrush or whatever. But it's, it's worth the investment of time to get to get the nice finish, I think. Now, now, after you sprayed a gloss or a satin coat, do you cover the model while it dries? I, now, I do mostly 70 second scale stuff, so it has the advantage of of smaller sizes. I have a couple of plastic cake toppers that I'll sit there and when I'm done spraying the gloss coat or the satin coat, I'll put the cake topper over it to keep dust from falling in on the finish while it's starting to harden and cure. That is exactly what I do. I have an old, Um, I have an old Tupperware container that I cut yep. some some holes in the side of the container so that you know the, the lid is is intact, and right. uh, I'll set the model inside there and I will cover it, set it aside on the bench, and just let it sit for twenty four thirty six hours. You're gonna hate me for what my favorite flat coat is. What's that? I, I still shoot testers dull coat out of the bottle at about seventy to eighty percent thinner. Seventy eighty percent thinner and twenty percent dull coat. Yeah, or less. That's about right. That that stuff is yeah. great. I mean, as long as see you're 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 shooting it right because you're taking it down to twenty percent. That stuff is such a, an efficient flat that if you go even just a little too far with that stuff, it will it will very quickly go donut frosty on you, as I'm sure you know. Well, high humidity will do that too. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's very true. Now I get that that donut frosty look. Uh, Often I tried to use the Tamiya flat and it was really easy for me to get that one going too far. What percentage you use? Do you remember? Well, it's obviously wrong, but I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> it was obviously too much, whatever it was. Yeah. So one of the things that, that I, I suffer through decaling, it takes me forever. It is, it is a very laborious process for me. And yeah. one of the things that I've started to do just lately um, is try to come up with uh, quicker ways for getting, you know, the decals down. And I'm working on the Arma uh, Arma models uh, P51B, which is absolutely gorgeous. Yes. And I'm, I'm at the decaling stage. And I did something a little different on this kit than I did before. Um, before, well, I should say, anytime I start a model, I always take a three by five piece of of styrene plastic. I cut up a whole bunch of pieces and I keep them in a little box on my bench. And when I start painting a model, I take a piece of that styrene and I shoot that styrene with the exact same mix of primer, the exact same mix of color paint, the exact same gloss coat that the model gets. In fact, the, the, the styrene piece is painted at the exact same time at each stage that the model is. So I have in, on this piece of styrene a sample of the coat that's on the model. And before I go to, to start the decaling, I will take that sample and I will test it with uh, various decal solvents as well as the decals themselves. 
as you guys know, some decals respond great to micro set and that's all they need. They don't actually need the saw versus some re- require the micro set and the micro saw. Each decal uh, manufacturer is slightly different from the rest. So it makes sense to test the decal, you know, use a decal off the sheet that you're not going to use for the model, put it on your test, you know, your test finish and try different decal solvents to identify the solvent that will dissolve the the decal without marring the finish. And I tried this with the, uh, with the Arma P51B. And what I found was interestingly that, um, the Arma, the decals in the Arma cut respond very well to uh, the Tamaya decal setting solution. Hmm. Yeah, and that's all I used. I didn't use anything else. And I, I that's a great idea. I'd never thought of doing that, but that's a great idea. Just have a little three by five and and use that as a as a test because you know, let's face it, decals can be one of those times that cause tears in a modeler if you know you you hit the you put the decal on and you hit it with the wrong uh solvent and it it breaks up the color starts to run uh you know 40 different things can happen exactly exactly so i started this maybe 10 15 years ago i i'll, I'll again i will the the moment that the primer goes on the kit, the primer goes on my my you know piece of styrene. Yeah. Everything to, that's done to the kit is done to the styrene, including all of the uh, the, uh, the the dry times and the curing times. So mm-hmm. it is exactly what I have on the kit, and I was able to find that actually the setting solution, the Tamiya setting solution, um, doesn't really affect CP30 that much at all. I was concerned that it would with time, but it didn't. But what I did find by just trial and error, trying other solvents, is that those decals that come with the Arma kit are very responsive to Tamiya setting solution. And they went on beautifully with just that on a CP30 gloss coat. So I just wanted to maybe share that with you, the idea of, you know, having, let's call it a paint mule, for lack of a better word, that you can test your decal solvents on before you go to your model. That might save you some tears in the long run. This is kind of related to to gloss coats and and clear finishes, etc. Talking about decals, like we are, obviously there's an interrelation between the decal and the and the gloss coat. When when you're modeling, in addition addition to do a, doing testing, when you pull a set of decals out of a kit, is there something particular you're just looking for with the naked eye? Yeah, I'm looking for the thickness of the carrier film. That's usually what I'll do. And if you look at something like micro scale decals or, you know, uh, a good quality aftermarket decal, you'll notice that the carrier film is 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 very, very thin. Mm-hmm. And that's that's the part that you're going to be working most on in order to to hide once you put the decal down. So obviously, if you're starting with a thinner carrier film, you're going to be ahead of the game than starting with a thick one. In particular, if you're doing some of the Eastern European kits, some of the older Eastern European kits, some of those decals are so thick you can see the carrier film without magnification. You know, and, yeah. And for those, you know, you may, you may want to think about, uh, you know, for decals that are that thick, you may want to think about going with an aftermarket set. Or at that point, when you're looking at uh, decals that uh, have really thick carrier film, 
maybe you ought to think about uh, using a more stable gloss coat because you know you're going to be using some solvents to get them down versus a gloss uh, versus a shinier, more fragile gloss coat. So you can match the gloss coat to the decals. If they're going to be problematic decals, you should go with a, a hardy gloss coat. Another question that I've got, do you ever, as part of your post-decaling weathering process, do you ever apply different levels of satin, flat, whatever you're doing across the model as a whole to individual panels or sections to try and and break up the finish? Well, not individual panels, but what I will do is if I have the model in, let's say, semi-gloss, which is, you know, what CP30 dries as, is, is, is a, you know, a nice semi-gloss. If I have the kit in that and I'm doing, I do mostly aircraft and I'm doing exhaust stains, when I go to shoot my satin, I'll shoot satin just where the exhaust is on the side of the fuselage. Because that's, gotcha. where, that's where I'm going to be putting my pigments, right? So I'll shoot gotcha. a little satin there. I'll let that dry. I'll put my pigments on, you know, my, 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 my powders to do, the, uh, to do the, uh, the exhaust. And then I'll tie the whole model together after the exhaust is on with one more light coat of satin. But light enough that the, one, the exhaust area is still, quote unquote, flatter than the finish of the rest of the model. Exactly. And that and that is the difference that I'm looking for. I want to show, you know, I want to I want to see more shine on the wing or maybe the horizontal stabilizers than I see right behind the exhaust stacks on the side of the fuselage. So I'll shoot gotcha. my satin there first, let that dry. It gives me the texture I need to put my pigments down and it also gives me more flat, if you will, in that one area than the rest of the model. And then after my pigments down, I'll just, you know, do a very light dusting with satin to blend it all in, but leaving those sides more flatter than the surrounding areas. Well, to Dave's point, though, I think one thing I've been curious to try is varying the, uh, the final flat or, or, or satin, satin and flat, really, on a, an aircraft like control surfaces that are fabric covered versus the aluminum or wooden wing panels. Yep. And wondering if, if that might be a way to... To get a good effect there, definitely, definitely would. I've I've done that on biplane models, and yes, for sure, you know, with fabric uh, fabric control surfaces, and yeah, that that's 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 a good little trick. It gives you a nice contrast without a lot of work. Well, back to the the old testers products. Um, you know, a, a lot of people chide these for color shift because they kind of have an amber tint to them. Yep. Uh, you know, I, I'm, th- I'm spraying the flat at such a low concentration that I've never experienced that with the, with dull coat ever. Right. In, in God, 30, 40 years, I guess. Now the gloss coat, uh, I don't use it a whole lot. I never have, but I, I think it's probably because you have to put more of it on to get the finish you want. Right. So may- maybe you're getting more of a color shift. Yeah. But I've seen, I've seen some models that were painted, you, you know, internet horror stories, particularly like, oh, would be a good example uh, that I've seen like in the last year was somebody, this dis- discussion came up about this stuff yellowing and it was a sixties uh, era naval fighter in the glossy, you know, grays, the gray over white. Yeah. The beautiful gray over white gloss. And that thing, it just, it was ruined. Yeah. You know, yep. 15, 18 years down the line of just sitting there with this testers gloss coat on it. And uh, it was like shades of Amber. Yep. 
Yep. When I was a wee baby modeler in the 70s, that was my go-to gloss coat with the testers uh, and my flat coat. And I can attest that I had some models in the cabinet that, you know, 10, 12, 15 years in, they they had started taking on a nice amber patina. Um, yeah, that's the reality. And you're right. Usually with the testers flat, which is still a really, really good, efficient flat, as long as it's not overused, you have to use so little of it to get, you know, the look that you want that you're not going to confer much of a color, much of an amber color to the model. Well, and not only that, if you're if you're spraying those those over green armor, it is much less likely to shift a green noticeably than over a gloss uh, gull gray over white sure. or a light blue or a white finish sure. where the the even a subtle color shift will be much more noticeable. Agreed. Agreed. Well, what else we got? You, we were talking distance to the the model when you're spraying the gloss coat. And you obviously are a little farther back than you might when you're applying a paint coat. Uh, you're shooting a little bit higher of pressure. Do you just judge it based on when you start to see that that spattering or that speckling? You're talking about trying to find the ideal, the ideal, the ideal distance to apply the coat. Okay, so I mean that that comes with experience, and you know I suggest everybody sit down. You know who who wants to get a feel for this, sit down with some you know sheet styrene, and, mm-hmm. and get a feel for working distance. Um, as as important as working distance is lever throw. Truly. So yeah. you, you want to be watching, especially when you're shooting a gloss coat, you tr- try not, and primer, any, any large coat you're doing, try not to use uh, more than 70% lever throw. Because again, once you get past that much lever throw, you start getting uh, droplets forming and your finish just deteriorates at that point. When you're airbrushing, do you ever, in any instance, pull, pull back more than... 60 or 70 percent lever throw to clear the tip uh, well okay other than yeah. cleaning all yeah, right that's it yeah that's it honestly that's it um because again if once you sit down with a piece of paper and you convince yourself that as soon as you go past 70 percent, you get all this stipple on the outside of the cone and once you see that you you, you don't you're not going to want to put that on the model so yeah i, I try very hard hard to not go past 60 or 70 percent lever throw if i need to go past 70 percent lever throw i'm using too small a tip gotcha well with my testers dull coat i'm that's probably where i'm at but i'm a lot closer than you were saying with the gloss because i I think if you get too far back with some of the flat coats you might as well be spraying flat white yeah because they they'll they especially if it's a lacquer because it'll dry through the air you know, and yeah, so you've got to be mindful. Again, that's where lever throw comes into play. You just want to use very little lever throw so you get just a kind of a fine misting coat, not so heavy that it starts drying and hitting the hitting the model as a snow, if you will. That brings up a question. We talked about, okay, the best thing you can do if you apply a decal and you're over an acrylic, it starts to get milky, walk away. 90% of the time, it'll fix itself without any. If you're spraying your model at, with a flat or a semi-flat or whatever, and you notice it start to, you're starting to get the, the glazed donut frosting. Yeah. Is there any cure to that other than to stop and go back and clean it off and, and try again? 
if anybody knows a better uh, way of fixing it than that, please tell me. <laughs> that was my experience, and I figured if if anybody knew a better way, you would know it. Nope. Well, if you're using something other than a, a true acrylic, I've I've recovered with a uh, a straight wet shot of lacquer thinner. Oh, there you go. That's a good thought. Yeah, I've I had I had a frost bomb on a on a Panzer gray finish one time that is back when I was young. I sprayed out on the deck of my apartment in the freaking middle of summer and sprayed it. Went back in the apartment, came back out, and it looked like it was uh, whitewashed. I'm like, oh, snow crap. covered. Wow. <laughs> so you shot a, a wet coat of lacquer on top of that? Yeah, and I got it to uh, to correct itself. Yeah, I mean, you probably solubilized the flat yep. and leveled it, so it made it a little more shiny. And yeah, that's that's an awesome save. Usually when that has happened to me, um, I usually grab the, uh, the, the micro mesh and, um, sit down and sit down and start buffing it out so I can reshoot it. I usually grab the tissues and start crying. (laughs) I've strived to avoid that now, you know, now I'm indoors in a spray booth, so it's not nearly the problem it used to be for me. Uh, now that I'm a, now that I've been earning a paycheck for 30 some years. So, uh, <laughs> but you know, it can still happen. There's, we, we you know, we got a, a lot of listeners who still talk about, you know, they're out in their garage or, yep. or whatever. And so humidity is a big deal for them. Humidity is a big deal. Speaking of that, maybe just take a second as we're getting toward, toward the end here. When, when you, when we had you on last and you spoke about airbrushing and you talked specifically about, the difference between airbrushing in Denver, Colorado and airbrushing in the swamps of Louisiana or whatever. <laughs> yeah. It was amazing the number of listeners who responded into us that they hadn't ever thought about the effects that that has. Yeah. And I assume the same applies to gloss and flat finishes because again, they're just paint coats in essence exactly right so i assume the same thing applies regarding temperature and humidity and and air altitude air pressure i think it's worse because not only do you have the 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 sprayability of the product it has all these adverse effects when it dries right yeah so if if i'm shooting a gloss coat and i'm sitting in um sea level Seattle, essentially, then I'll use maybe 5% uh, Liquitex flow aid and 5%, 5% Liquitex slow dry. And I'll shoot my gloss somewhere around 20 or 30%. If you're sitting in, let's say Denver, Colorado in the dead of winter, and you've had the uh, heater up to 11 for the last two months, um, you're probably living in a very arid situation. And in, in, in that, in that, you know, particular atmosphere, I would think I would be thinking about upping both the flow and the slow to uh, 10% from 5% to 10%. And that comes out of the thinner uh, portion of the, uh, of the uh, mix. So I'd still go with 30% gloss. I'd go with 10% flow aid, 10% slow dry. And the balance of that would be thinner. Upping those in, in, in arid conditions will go a long way to making the paint, paint behave as though it is more humid. And the other thing that you can do is if it's really severe situations, again, you know, dead of winter and, and very arid, you may want to drop the gloss from 30 to 20 percent. Um, again, keep the slow aid and the flow dry up at 10 percent each. 
Yeah, that's a really important consideration. And if it's if it's a really uh, dry, arid uh, period, and uh, you you don't see a break coming for you know a day or two, you may want to put the model away for a week or so until you get better conditions for shooting your gloss coat. Well, John, we got a few minutes left. Won't you give us the skinny on what's happening at Model Paint Solutions right now? Um, I'm now just trying to get a whole bunch of articles out that uh, that I've been promising to to get out for the last couple of months. I'm going to be coming out with an article on the GTK Boxer in 172nd scale, the uh, the Dragon Kit that I finished in AK uh, 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 Real Colors, and I shot the Real Colors with three different thinners, and the scheme that I did required all fine uh, fine line airbrushing, and that'll be published this week. And it will give three different uh, ways, or multiple ways, I should say, of dil- of diluting uh, AK Real Colors for uh, for fine line airbrushing. Fine line being one millimeter wide. I have to ask, at least for a preview, what were the three thinners you used? <laughs> the three thinners I used were the uh, uh, high compatibility thinner by AK. That is now my favorite thinner, bar none. Um, I also compared the uh, nitro thinner by AK and the extreme extreme thinner for metallics by AK. And uh, you know, I'll 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 ruin it a little bit. Although the AK extreme thinner is great for cleaning the brush, it's also great for uh, diluting the metallics, the AK extreme metallics, which which I I use regularly. It's not that great for fine lining. It is such a strong. Uh, a lacquer that it dries the paint out as most lacquers will. And so you're going to end up having to add uh, leveling agents to that thinner in order to use it for fine line. So it's not really ideal for fine line. Uh, the nitro thinner is okay. Um, it needs a bit of, of retarder in it to, uh, to deal with uh, tip dry. The surprise was the high compatibility thinner. And if you look at the uh, the makeup of that stuff, it has some interesting ingredients in it that a lot of other thinners don't have. But <laughs> it's one of the few thinners I found um, improved just a little bit by the addition of flow aid and didn't improve at all with the addition of slow dry. It didn't really need it. It is an excellent thinner for using with the AK Real Colors for fine line airbrushing. Um, I was getting one millimeter, half millimeter wide lines using roughly 20% paint and uh, very little tip dry. And it was just an enjoyable experience to paint this kit and do nothing but fine line work on it. So anyway, that article hopefully will be up this week for guys who want to uh, look at how you can you can dilute your AK Real Colors for fine line airbrushing. Well, I can't wait to read that. Yeah, thanks. By the way, that makes a point. Go to John's site regularly. He has at modelpaintsolutions.com. Uh, the he has regular editions and regular articles. There's a lot of good resources on the site, and uh, you'll you'll always find something new and interesting. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. The, what I'd like to suggest, and I hope I'm not uh, not getting ahead of us here, but um, I'd like to suggest that um, in lieu of some emails that I've gotten um, in the last week or two. A lot of guys are sending me emails because they're having issues with seams. There's more to seams, it seems. (laughs) I'd like to suggest, if you guys are game, that the the next time we do a a cast, we take on gluing seam. 
I absolutely would love that because we've had a couple of uh, discussions regarding seams and ghost seams and all that. And I think that is an underappreciated area. So oh. I can't, I would, I would love that. Oh, sounds good. I, I think so too, especially for the guys uh, and, you know, anybody out there that's going to be doing a model where you're looking at finishing it in a natural metal metallic. Right. Oh God, yes. So as soon as you start talking about that, you're going to be it. it all, all metallic paints do one thing: they magnify seams, right? Yes, they are the most unforgiving finish there is. Completely and totally true. So uh, I've had a couple of emails about that, and uh, it's something that I applied myself to starting you know, many years ago: how to deal with these seams in a, in a reliable way. So anyway, if you uh, if you guys want to chat about that, we can put that on the docket. We'll do it. Because it is timely. We had we had a listener mail in this in the episode this is going into about seams. So awesome, yeah. It sounds all, good. It's all good. It all right, good. John. Well, listen. Thanks again for for coming on board with us and uh, having a segment with us. We we sure appreciate it and appreciate your sponsorship. And uh, it's all it's all good, man. Hope to see you soon. Can't wait to see you in Omaha. I'll see you guys. I'll see you guys. Now, am I, are we going to be meeting in your hotel room again? Are we doing that? We will be meeting in our hotel room nightly. Are you coming now? Well, I'm going to be there one night. Well, make sure it's not the night of the uh, SAC Museum, Night at the Museum tour, because we won't be in the hotel room. Yeah, yeah I don't blame you. Um, no, actually, I, I've, I've got other obligations that week, and, and I'm having to break break free of that. I'm going to fly into Omaha, and I'm going to be giving uh, one talk. I'm going to be giving two talks, that, uh, a talk the day I get there and uh, a talk the next day. Uh, but I will be there for one night, and I did have you guys penciled in, so. All right. Well, we'll we'll make sure that second presentation is really hard. Yeah. Thanks. Yes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Take care, guys. All right. Take man. it easy. Bye. As always, that was absolutely illuminating. I find myself every time we talk to Doctor Miller, I find myself with the notebook in hand, making notes as he's talking. Educational every single time. So hopefully, the listeners enjoyed that as much as I did. Well, I hope so too. And, and, you know, clear coats, a lot of options out there. So hopefully some folks learn something. Yep. Absolutely. Or inspired well, to try, try something new. And well, that's always, again, try new things because you'll never know till you do. We're getting to the end of the uh, episode here, Mike. Uh, what, what did you think of your bourbon? You know, it's not bad. I, I must say for a, a store exclusive where they bought up all the barrels and, and bottled it. And if you're near total wine, the, the bank street bourbon is, is, it's not bad. It's a five year. It's, it's a little hot on the front end for a, for an 80 proof, but that's probably because it's a five year. Hasn't mellowed quite hasn't, as much hasn't as you quite would. mellowed, you know, about three more years and hopefully they've put some back. Let's just say yeah. that. Uh, not bad. Would I do it again? I, I don't know. It's about a $35 price point, and I think there's some that are better than this for a lot less money. Sure. But, you know, it's it's hot on the front end, but it's got a it's got a, a lot of vanilla in it. I made it to I made it to the end of the episode. <laughs> it it you wasn't didn't, you did you didn't tap out like I did. No, no no peanut butter here. All right. And your and your beer, Dave? Well, uh, you know what? It got less skunky as we went along, 
So that either was the fact that it just overwhelmed my taste buds to the point where I never, I didn't notice it anymore. Or you got uh, more drunky. <laughs> well, yeah, that's all, always a possibility. Uh, it's only 4.8% por- 4. alcohol vi- by volume, so it's actually pretty light. Uh, would I go out of my way to drink it? No. Was it drinkable? Kinda. Now, being manufactured in China, God knows what's in this stuff. Um, but it's got melamine in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, God knows it could have it could have all sorts of things, uh, uh, trace chemicals or whatever. Uh, but I didn't go blind, so that's a good good sign. Um, it wasn't bad. Now I can say that I've I've had a local Chinese manufactured beer. I can cross that off my list. Um, you've never had Qingdao? Qingdao? Yes, I've had Qingdao. So you've had a Chinese beer. But that's, isn't that, that's Taiwan, Republic of China, is it not? No, it's not. Isn't it? It's mainland. Is it mainland? Okay. Well, then, then okay, I've had a second. But no, it, it, it wasn't something that I'd go out of my way to drink again. But then again, it wasn't peanut butter whiskey. And maybe I'm maybe I'm grading on a curve ever since the peanut butter whiskey. You know what? I suspect at Omaha, I'm going to hear a lot about peanut butter whiskey. I think so. So <laughs> I, I, I encourage you to get back in the lane, Dave, and get something uh, a little more fundamental. As as you know, because you texted me today, Three Floyds has l- released a new uh, a new brew and a new packaging, and I can't wait. I'm gonna try. It wasn't a total wine when I went today and looked, but I'm gonna pick that up as soon as I can. Well, hopefully, we'll be talking to those cats real soon. <laughs> yeah, we have we have to talk to those people. Uh, you got any shout outs? I do, Dave. Up front, I'd like to shout out uh, the supporters of Plastic Model Mojo. This episode of Plastic Model Mojo is brought to you by Tim Cavalier, William Dickinson, and Joe Travis. If you'd like to help us along the way at Plastic Model Mojo, there are two ways to do so. You can do so at PayPal. There is a heart icon in the upper right-hand corner of our homepage at www.plasticmodelmojo.com. And this goes directly to a PayPal link. You can make a one-time contribution there or manage your own recurring contribution there if you'd like, as much or as often as you like. And there's also Patreon, www.patreon.com slash plasticmodelmojo. There you can become a patron and uh, set up an automatic recurring contribution if you'd like to do so from any amount from a dollar on up. Folks, we appreciate anything you're willing to to, uh, throw our way. And it's just, it's, we, we say this every episode and God, I don't want to become cliche because it's not, I mean, it's hard to believe that we started this thing and, and, and folks are supporting us with their wallet because it really helps us out, Dave. Big props to all the people, whether you've supported us for a dollar or 10 times that, whatever you've done, thank you. Every single, every single dollar is appreciated. You got a you got a shout out? I've actually got two. Well, I've got another one, so do one okay. first. Uh, my shout out is uh, somebody I mentioned earlier in the episode, Roy Sutherland at Barracuda Cows. Um, you know these cottage industry bit, what we refer to as cottage industry businesses. They they value add a lot to the hobby 
and they do stuff that obviously uh, mainstream manufacturers don't do. Uh, they give us options and things to improve our models. And, and you know, it's not always the easiest thing to do, to do that. I, I highly recommend uh, uh, Barracuda Cows. If you go to their website, just put Barracuda Cows in, in Google and it'll take you right to it. Roy's a great guy. Roy cut his teeth. Uh, he was a model maker on the Star Wars franchise. and. Uh, he does fantastic stuff, and he has certainly added to the hobby over the years. So um, that's one of my shout-outs is to Roy. Well, my, my other shout-out is the IPMS Hamilton gang and the folks at Lightspeed Global for the support for Musaroo Cup 3. They provided the kits, provided all the orchestrating of the contest and the challenge and the judging. It was a fun go, uh, but Dave, you got, you got to fill the shoes next year, man. Yeah, now you set the bar damn high. I mean, I've got to say, I, I, you, you, there's a part of me that that's while I'm thrilled for you and you certainly deserve it. That's part of me that's really kind of pissed off because now I've got to uphold the honor of Plastic Model Mojo, and you set the bar super high. Well, no, I, you don't have to be better than mine. You have to be better than the other entries when you do it. <laughs> oh, great. Oh well. <laughs> And, and that could be higher or lower. I don't know. Yeah, I, I don't know. But there's going to be more competition. So that alone is going to That's right. Be... And then they're not any slouches either. No, absolutely not. None of these guys are. Um, <laughs> well, my final shout out is to the Plastic Model Mojo community. I mentioned Albert Moore and his interaction with me on Facebook regarding my use of the Null Noel but for the first time, and then his recommendation of the uh, Agrax Earthshade. I'd never have, if, if it were not for this community, and if it were not for interactions like that, that's modeling knowledge that I may never have have had. I wouldn't have thought necessarily to go in, look at the Citadel rack and go, oh, well, let's try this and let's try that and let's try the other thing. You recommended the Null Noel. Great recommendation. He recommended the the Agrax Earthshade. I'm going to try that. The community out there does a really great job through their interaction with us in growing the knowledge base for modeling. And if it helps just one person, I mean, I, I hope it helps me. Uh, but if since all these interactions are mostly visible to the whole community, you know, it's fantastic that we get to learn from each other like this. And and I, I want you all, all of you out there to know, we really appreciate it. Mike and I really, really appreciate the level of interaction that we get from you all out there listening. All right, Dave, we're getting to the end of this thing. Yep. You know what that means. As we always say, Dave, so many kits... So little time. See you soon, Mike. All right. Well, we got to show you.